Hello and welcome to The 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm fine, Darren. I'm, I'm fine. I'm coming, coming through fine and clear. How, how are you, Darren? Do you recognize my voice, Andrew? Yes, Darren, I, I recognize your voice. Okay, uh, here are some other voices you might recognize joining us for this conversation about Stanley Kubrick's 1964 Doctor Strange Love, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, a title we are going to use in its fullness and entirety over the course of this podcast. We are not going to do that. But joining us for this conversation, the fantastic Eva Martin. How are you, Eva? I'm, well, it's a Monday, it's January. I'm pretty okay, I think, considering... Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks. Nice to be here. If it makes you feel better, mm-hmm. this will be out in maybe April. Oh, so it's it's April. <laughs> <laughs> it's Saturday evening in April. <laughs> what are we going to do? <laughs> yeah, this is uh, the um, like the the the, the we're for, in our for, fourth lo- we're in our fourth lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> For the listeners, like who who wait until Saturday evening for it to come out, where it's like must see, must listen podcasting. Yeah, uh, I mean yeah. we we record this every time somebody presses play on a podcast app. The four of us assemble and record this live just for you, <laughs> listener. Heroes uh, and the students, you we, we truly are. And another hero joining us for this, the fantastic Jason Coyle. How are you, I'm Jay? Uh, I'm loving this April weather. Uh, it's 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 really great, balmy. Uh, some would say. <laughs> It's amazing what all the stuff that happened in the past two months, so much that we can't even talk about. If only we had time. Did I get married yesterday? No, I think you're getting married in about two weeks. Oh, okay. Good, good. (laughs) You should know that, Andrew, I feel. I should. (laughs) But but yes, we are talking about Doctor Strangelove, um, Stanley Kubrick's 1964. How about that stag do? Pretty good, right? (laughs) Whoa. Pretty good. Um, but yes, we are talking about Doctor Strange, though. Stanley Kubrick's 1964 black and white apocalyptic black comedy. Um, so, Aoife, you joined us last year to talk about um, the Clockwork Orange, um, which, you know, is is a Stanley Kubrick film. And we kind of talked a bit about that. We talked about your relationship with Kubrick. But how do you feel about Doctor Strangelove? Like, is it is it one of your favorite Kubrick films? Um, is it one that you have a particular attachment to? Um. No, not really. I mean, it is, it, it, it's, it's hard to describe my relationship with this film. Like, um, it is definitely one of, it was one of my favorites. Um, I always thought it was very, very, very funny black comedy. Um, watching it recently, I found it less funny, but that's because of the world we're living in at the moment, I think. Um, I could see, you know, what happened in the film happening today. You know, you look at, you know, I was reminded of QAnon and the attack on the Capitol building and, and um, the former president of the United States of America. And, you know, suddenly it didn't seem as funny anymore. So it's, you know, rewatching it this time has been very interesting to me. But yeah, it's, it's from I've always liked, you know, I've always enjoyed. And, you know, I think Kubrick had a, had a great run, you know, f- from Strange Love On. You know, I'm not, not a huge fan of Lolita, but from Strange Love On, I think he had a great run, you know, but four or five films there that were absolutely superb. Well, I mean, we should acknowledge it's a pretty straight run for Kubrick on the 250 from this point onwards. I mean, he does have earlier movies like The Killing and Spartacus were on the list and dropped off. 
Um, we do have Paths to Glory are actually on the 250 as well. But like all of his movies afterwards, with the notable exception of Eyes Wide Shut, are on there. So you've got like a, you know, a Space Odyssey from 1968, A Clockwork Orange from 71, which we covered. Uh, you jump forward, you have Barry Lyndon, you have The Shining, you have Full Metal Jacket. So it, it is a straight run for Kubrick. This is the point at which Kubrick kind of really begins. And it's arguable that, again, this is... I believe the first time that Kubrick produced his own movie as well, and therefore the first time that he stepped into the role of producer, director, and co-writer, and the first time you could argue that you had a truly Stanley Kubrick film, perhaps, and then that is why this run kind of begins here, although we will talk a bit more about the leader later on. But Jay, what about yourself? What's your hot take on... um, Dr. Strangelove like uh, do you remember the first don't time give you us saw all it? your hot takes no I'm a professional I'll parse them out over the evening I mean you know come on <laughs> evenly distribute them uh, Jay will be playing uh, three separate roles yeah, so, on this podcast <laughs> me, Jay. of course you hurt me ankle so I can't do the fourth one uh, but such nice. is life uh, I it's it Eve has kind of covered somewhat similar uh, area that I had I, I think she's absolutely correct around the kind of the political aspects of it that probably play a little harder now than they would have done maybe. I don't know it came out in the 60s post kind of Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis and all the rest of it. So obviously that was there at the time. But I think now, I think even 10 years ago, this film would have played a lot easier. And I think I, I, think I last saw it in 2013 before I watched it uh, this weekend. And I didn't find it particularly funny. Um, and in fairness, I don't think it's a political thing. I just, I, I think there's, there's a certain films, and I'll, I'll talk about this later a bit more, I guess, but there's certain films that I think it's either to the kind of cultural osmosis or whatever it is that just becomes so familiar that they lose a certain impact. Uh, or for, certainly for me, I have it with this a little bit. I think I have it with Halloween, the character original as well, where I can appreciate them and admire them and see exactly what they're doing. They're very good, very enjoyable, all the rest of it. But I just, whatever the kind of, what made me see it as a glorious masterpiece maybe 10 years ago, I don't quite feel anymore. Isn't it in another kind of way? Jay, stop angling. We're not going to do Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. Just no looking how hard you keep pushing. Uh, but uh, <laughs> that's, that's neither here nor there. Someday, Darren, when I, when I read the votes, that'll happen. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> but, but I mean, there is something I kind of want to, to talk about there just because it's it's something that both you and Aoife kind of mention. It's kind of like quintessential to Dr. Strangelove, which is the idea that this is a film that is very much firmly rooted in a time and place. And again, this is probably, I don't know whether this conversation going to hold off into the spoiler zone, but just like in terms of context, obviously you point out like it was, you know, after the Bay of Pigs, it was after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. It was, in fact, delayed uh, due to the assassination of JFK. There's, like, Kubrick himself in his library has, like, tickets to cancelled screenings that were postponed due to the assassination. They have to change lines of dialogue so that they no longer refer to having a good time in Dallas um, because that was deemed to be too close. Um, there's suggestions that one of the alternate endings of the movie was removed in part because it was too close or too evocative of what happened to Kennedy in Gals. And obviously all of this is tied up in things like the nuclear bomb. It's tied up in things like mutually assured destruction. And there's an argument that, you know, this was something that was very much on the American public consciousness in the 60s, arguably into the 70s. And we will talk, I've done a lot of research on this, which is frankly terrifying about how close the world kind of came to annihilation and how close Dr. Strangelove is to being a documentary. Well, But no. one of the, oh, sorry. 
No, it's going. To, sorry, sorry. No, no. Um, go on. I, I was, I was going to add to what you were saying, and it wasn't just in the public consciousness. It was in kind of, um, it, it, like people would go to Las Vegas and watch nuclear tests, like from um, these kind of like fancy hotels. Like they would kind of, you know, With put the on their sunglasses. On. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um it's it's nuts. Like the 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 sixties relationship with with with, with nuclear with weapons and how kind of close it all was. But sorry. Yeah. And and generally speaking, there's been this argument against Doctor Strange. And I mean there are arguments that it's timeless and, and we'll kind of get into that timely, timeless debate. But generally speaking, the consensus on Dr. Strangelove seemed to be, and I'm going to quote here from uh, David Cares, and Jay was right, he mentioned 10 years ago, this is a review in the New York Times uh, from June 2009, reviewing a new remastered DVD version of the movie, um, saying that, you know, this is David Kerr saying, steeped in the improvisational ethic of the early 60s, Nickel and May, The Second City, the film may be at, at its best in those low-key moments when Sellers, playing the American president, chats nervously on the hotline with the unseen Soviet premiere. Moments that owe everything to Bob Newhart's classic telephone routines. Strange Love is a rare case of a film that has become a classic more for marking the end of an era of high Cold War paranoia than initiating a new one. And again, this is a podcast about the IMDb 250, so we're going to do boring list stuff for a second. Uh, but like, like many movies, the arc... Doctor Strangelove is a 100%er. It has always been on the list. It will likely always be on the list. But historically, its trend has been downwards. It started um, at number number 10 when it first came in in 96, and it did climb to a high of number 9. This was the ninth best film of all time on the 12th of September 1997. But it began a slow but steady decline, um, and it took a massive jump uh, downwards in July 2019 to October, where it fell something like 20 places in the space of a couple of months. However, and this is something I find interesting, and this is something that I think maybe speaks to what Aoife and Jay were suggesting, it's recently begun to climb again, very slowly and very steadily. It jumped five places uh, in the first couple of months of 2021. Um, so it's a movie that is perhaps a bit more timely now, than it might have seemed 10 years ago, kind of to tap in there as well. Um, yeah, I think so. All right, so before we jump to the spoiler zone, three questions uh, to get us started, just to kick us You're off. really so, not you... going to ask me? <laughs> <laughs> so, Andrew, what about yourself? What, what's this, your own This movie to? meant an awful lot to me. For real. Well, like, now I feel like, like an in, asshole. In, Sorry. No, because generally I don't have an interesting answer to that question. And and now I have to say something interesting. But no, no, it, it it's not that interesting. All it was, was in uh, in school, in secondary school, I really, really wanted to see this movie to the point that like my, um, it was like um, a, a, a friend of mine at the time, you would have known him, Brian, I think... Um, Saw that it was on one night, and uh, I I think had re had had recorded it, and it was this. It, 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 I was waiting so long to watch this, and I think I I liked Kubrick movies, and I liked Sellers, and I love it when like lots of things I like kind of like combine in the same movie, and this seemed like kind of um, heady and 
uh, funny and like it, it, it like it, it kind of um, you know a, a, a political movie that I that I always kind of enjoyed as well. Um, and yeah, I, 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 I think, I think anything was going to kind of be a disappointment after that, but I still really loved it. And I think every time since it's kind of there, I think the problem with comedies is that, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, having said that, you remember the big ones and the big jokes and like gradually as you go further and further um, there are there are ones that you don't there are jokes that you don't remember that get you kind of on the third or fourth uh, uh, viewing, um, and and but but it is diminishing returns I think, and that that's maybe like a problem with us. Yeah, I think that's probably fair, Andrew. To be honest, yeah, the the the, I, the politics of it don't trouble me because you you can release this podcast anytime and people would say oh the news. Um, <laughs> um, those things that the, are happening the, everything bad happening in the world now is, um, it, it's 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 kind of always going to be the case that there's something um, that this well I mean the doomsday clock is what now it's closer than it was ever um, to the, you know to midnight it may not be the threat of nuclear annihilation but it's still an existential threat to mankind I do, I do think though the, the difference by... with it now is that people would gladly welcome it as opposed to the 60s <laughs> right <laughs> where they're like but man the Beatles have to release a new album (laughs) the four horsemen of the apocalypse yes indeed no it's it's a fair point just you know what have you done lately oh it's just the doomsday clock screw the doomsday clock there's millions of other things going on over here yeah it's it's people are people are buying a lot of like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell records that they were going to listen to on Spotify during the apocalypse. Sorry, <laughs> that is dating the the. the they could the be back on it. it they could be even back on. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they've kicked off Joe Rogan by now, right? Um, <laughs> but like, yeah, like I mean, it was 12 minutes to midnight in 1963, and now we're at what 100 seconds uh, to midnight. Oh, what would you tell um, me that for? Jesus, it's not a. It's a metaphor, Jay. It's a metaphor. It's it's not. It's literally. Years, you just told me it was 100 seconds. That's not a metaphor. It's 100 seconds. <laughs> it's a metaphor. That, for I mean, that's seconds. That's a, it's under two minutes. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, we'll never get the podcast finished in time. Um, but yeah, I mean, okay, oh, this is it, this is interesting because I seem to be the only person whose esteem for this movie has perhaps gone up um, over time and over rewatching it. Because I think one of the things that's interesting is I saw it at a similar age to Andrew. I have a sneaking suspicion this was one of the great RTE2 midnight movies, um, which was kind of an old experience that kids won't remember because now everything is streaming and there are 1,000 channels. But when I was growing up, there were like four channels that I could watch on my TV that I managed to convince my parents to put in my bedroom. And one of my great cinematic experiences was growing up watching whatever T 2 put on at like midnight on a Thursday yeah. evening. Um, and I remember, I think I've mentioned this before, it's a very sad story, but I remember watching, sad in the sense of being pathetic, but I remember that like every late August, they would screen a four hour movie, like the Thursday before I went back to school. So I would stay up from midnight to like 5.30 a.m. with all the advertisements between it and watch like Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet or Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America or the Decalogue or whatever it was they were putting on in that slot right before I went back to school. See, saddest story ever. But I I I get the sense that like 
this was a movie I saw in that area where it was just, it was. The sad thing, Darren, was that you were like, not only do I have this four hour movie, but I'm going back to school. Um, <laughs> this that's... is the best week ever. I've got school to look forward to and a four hour movie yes. and a midnight I can, screening. I, I can go on Saturday or Friday, Darren. I, I remember RTE showing the Deer Hunter, but after a live boxing match. So I was sent to bed and my father woke me up after the boxing match so I could come down and watch the the Deer Hunter at <laughs> God knows what hour in the morning it was. <laughs> <laughs> See, kids don't know how lucky they have it with their recording <laughs> functionality and their streaming. Um, you had to, like, what Andrew described is very similar. You had to look through, like, if you wanted to find something, you have to look through papers. And if you did, oh, yeah. if you just wanted to watch something, mm-hmm. you had four options. I think um, the only thing like that now is, like, uh, boxing or like mixed martial arts events where like people or the Olympics last year where people have to stay up until like kind of three or four in the morning. I don't think anybody did for the Olympics. I, I, did, I, did, people- I did a little bit, but then I'll stay up for any sport because I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the um, winter 2022 is it's coming. Uh, yeah, it's already <laughs> happened. <laughs> Qatar. <laughs> Depending on um, when we release this. Um, yeah. Sorry. But, um, like, no. So, like, I mean, I watched this as a kid when I was about, what, 11 or 12. And, you know, I was not necessarily, like, the smartest, sharpest kind of kid. Um, and I remember watching it. And it taking me a while the first time I watched it to twig it was a comedy. And there's a very astute point, I think, that, like, uh, Noel Murray at the AV Club makes, which is, like, if you turn off the sound and you watch Dr. Strangelove, like, look at the cinematic language of it. Yes. How long does it take you to realize that this is a comedy? At what point do you figure that, like, Kubrick has turned this into a black comedy? And, you know, again... The very we'll last scene, I think, is the answer. Yeah, that, that's the point at which it becomes undeniable. Um, but or like, when Charles when C. Scott falls over. Yeah, the, the <laughs> well, I mean, the argument is that like two or three of the actors in this movie didn't even know it was a comedy. But like, I remember as like sweet, innocent, 11 year old Darren being like, this is a, they said this was a, com- it's not funny. It's really just depressing and bleak. And then it taking a while to grow on me as I watched it through the first time. And then going back a couple of years later as a teenager going, actually, from the outset, this is darkly hilarious from its opening moments. I suddenly kind of get it. So my esteem has kind of uh, gone up for it, perhaps, in that sense. But okay, before we jump to the spore zone, three questions to get us started. So, Jay, yes. do you think that Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Uh, probably, I guess. I, I, insofar as I don't think one director should have pretty much all their films on any list is the disqualifier in that one. But, you know... It's a yeah, objectively I could say yes. I think we'll come back around to the other question when that comes along. I mean that's a, I think that's a more interesting answer. But um yeah, I I can't argue anybody that says it does, put it that way. You mentioned the idea of like Kubrick dominating the list and he does. He has seven films on there, which is as many as any other director. Um like does this have a more right to be there than say the shining or a space odyssey or clockwork orange does this I mean, make a better argument i personally for i'd have 2001 up there as the kubrick representative film if i have if i was choosing one i think i think it's the best representation of his ideas and technical mastery and all the rest of it. that would be there for me but I, I i think a few people have different answers than that but you don't begrudge at this one no, Eva, what about your no. oh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe i don't darren maybe i do who knows 
and we should actually note, by the way, that while this is currently the third highest ranked uh, Kubrick movie uh, on the list uh, at a position of number 67, it is the it has held the highest rank of any Kubrick movie. It is the only Kubrick movie to have ever been in the top 10. Really? Um, but yeah, which is, is, yeah. is quite stunning. The both A Space Odyssey and Paths to Glory have been at 25. And Paths to Glory is kind of interesting because Paths to Glory is the current highest ranked Kubrick movie on the list uh, in that it's at number 60 That's which is peculiar. interesting given that yeah because yeah, it's not part of the kind of Kubrick canon as it were not really but, no like like I'm a Kubrick fan and I've never felt like I like I needed to run not walk to to paths of glory you know didn't have to beat a path to path of glory <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no. Aoife what about yourself do you think that this movie Doctor Strangelove belongs on a list of I mean, the 250 I have similar similar to Jay I've I would have no problem with it being there um, I mean it is, it is a great film I do prefer other Quebec films but I, like I waver between um, Space Odyssey and Barry Lyndon and um, The Shining, usually. Um, I think this is one, one of Kubrick's probably more cynical films, but then I think most films are quite cynical. I think Space Odyssey is probably his most humane film or his most human film. So, um, yeah, I don't mind it being there. Um, but I, if we were to have one Kubrick film on there, it would probably be Space Odyssey for me as well. I, I like the general mood of it's like ah yeah. put it there, yeah. but we're not going to take it off. Yeah, no, it's um, fine. I mean, it's but I mean, lists are very subjective, and you can ask me the same question tomorrow, and I might give you a different answer. You know, depends on my mood. <laughs> and and Andrew, what about yourself? Do you think this movie belongs on the list of the two hundred and fifty greatest movies ever made? Um, perhaps I think um, as kind of obvious as the. Um, I guess point of the movie might seem. I think it's a very important um, uh, theme, and that it needs to be um, never kind of forgotten about. Because I think people do, when 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 there are so many global risks, um, the nuclear threat, which is. Um, uh, I don't think a spoiler to reveal what this movie is about. Um, Hang on, what? Uh, <laughs> what kind of bomb? Yeah. I, th- I thought this was about the release of a movie that underperformed. Yeah. The Doctor Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, I think d- does deserve to be on the top 250. I think in terms of Kubrick, I would probably, like, um, as, a, as a director and, like, as a piece of film, I'd you kind of have to put this a little bit lower down in like maybe below Barry Lyndon. I mean, there's, there, there's parts of this movie that are really janky and I wonder if it's, if that's intentional. Um, but you, you're, you're kind of wondering, am I giving this director now credit that I wouldn't otherwise give? Um, because you know what he goes on to do. Yeah, exactly. He's just like, oh, that must be intentional. Like, because of yeah. the cult that he's cultivated around himself and that sort of thing. But um, but there were, there were, there were bit, the parts of it that were probably just to do with the technical limitations of the time. But if that was the case, then why not kind of make some, you know, if if you're if you're Stanley Kubrick, you 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 can find some creative solution to this. But but maybe that's unfair. Um, but no, I would put it on the list, um, not because it's one of the best Kubrick movies, but because it it's um, 
I think um, it's a message that needs to, or, or a story that needs to be told. Um, it might kind of lack heart, I think, a little bit. Um, but um, but you can maybe. But the title contains the word love twice. <laughs> um, yeah, and and it's a Kubrick movie, so. <laughs> Okay, well, not not to jump too far ahead, but I, I would counter your observation that this movie lacks heart by asking, is this the horniest movie that we have ever covered? And we have covered 365 <laughs> days. We'll cover a pin Good, in that and we'll... Different come... things, Darren. That comment that's concerns me. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's going to be the spoiler's own question this week. Great. But no, um... <laughs> Jay is all here for that. But no, I I find myself torn on it because, again, it's the same thing that I think Jay said, which is, like, how much Kubrick is enough Kubrick? Uh, but on the other hand, I do think that, you know, comedy's underrepresented on the list. I do think that, you know, it's nice to have movies that are snapshots of particular times. And this is, like, well, again, we keep saying we'll talk about whether it is timely or timeless or both when we get to the spoiler zone. But this is, I think, a movie that evokes a particular time and a particular feeling, a particular place, a particular mood and ambience that is maybe worth celebrating or acknowledging or at least recording and documenting. Uh, but on the other and and to Andrew's point, like this is all because I think this is for me one of the most visually memorable of Kubrick's films. I think like certainly parts of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't like. Is the War Room the best set in the history of cinema? Because, I mean, like, that's the thing that apparently Spielberg said to Ken Adams, the set designer. Adams, who famously designed, like, many of the classic Bond headquarters, going back to, like, Dr. No and, you know, back to You Only Live Twice. Apparently Spielberg said to, to Adams, look, that set is the best set in a Kubrick film. And then apparently later in the night, Spielberg apparently came back over rather timidly and he said, actually, what I said to you was wrong earlier. I'm sorry. Um, that's the best set in the history of cinema. Um and I can kind of see that. that. Like, that is, like, when I think of the movie, I see the war room set. Hell, like, I mean, there are all sorts of famous stories about Ronald Reagan coming into the White House and asking to be shown to the war room, which doesn't actually exist because he'd seen it in Dr. Strangelove. I, um, the, I suppose, to, to be clear, I'm talking about the exterior shots of airplanes. Oh, okay, okay, cool. yeah, yeah, okay. Which, 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 which is just kind of what it is. Like they, they, they it, there's no it other does... way of doing it. I don't think it. Yeah, yeah, and it does honest. look janky, and it kind of um, it, it worked better on VHS because <laughs> yes, uh, you know, <laughs> you didn't have the right. This the is the problem definition. with Blu-ray to some degree, or any kind of when you get to 4K and stuff. There's certain films that shouldn't be seen uh in a way like <laughs> at that at that definition because it kind of takes away if, the magical effect. if Kubrick was still about would he be doing like a Lucas <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah I don't know I think we just be, wouldn't let him to be released that that'd be that because he's contrarian in that way I, I was about to say that like I'm imagining Kubrick going back and adding VHS lines to the all, it, all, he, all, he, all he did was just release a VHS refuse to upgrade it in any way shape or form um, so I guess my answer to that is a non-committal maybe, which means this is shaping up to be a very impassioned episode. Um, and Jay, yes, you 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 tease this, so let's let's get the boxing gloves on. Do you would Doctor Strange Love be on your own personal two hundred and fifty, your own two hundred and fifty um, favorite movie? If you asked me this ten years ago, I would say absolutely. Um, I don't know is the answer no, um, but there's a couple of things here. One, 
I, I don't think it works for me as good as it used to. And two, I, I've cooled on Kubrick as the years have gone by. I would have been a big Kubrick fanboy 20 years ago. Um, and I, like, I still admire a huge swathes of films. And 2001 is as good a film as has ever been made. As one that I still go back to. Barry Lyndon probably similarly. Um, but outside of that, I, I think he takes up far too much space in film conversations, now, which I'm also literally contributing right here now, right? But <laughs> in the general sense, like he hoovers up a lot of ground in cinematic discourse, which it's not his fault. I mean, the man's dead. There's nothing he can do about it. But the kind of the, the way, and you've, we've discussed it before, Garden Regard, fandoms and all the rest of it, how these things tend to work. Um, so it, I just, I, I find this film, I find the conversation out exhausting. I think you've exhausted me a little bit to a certain degree at the films as well, which is unfortunate. Was, but I, it wouldn't be on my list, but I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't say, you know, if somebody else said, I think it should be. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a very good film. Like, I no real thing against the film in that way. It just doesn't work for me as well as it used to. Do you think that that, that cachet kind of works against it in your mind? As in, like, if it were something that were somehow on the list and that you like it you, it, you know it, it boggles your mind how there's so many Kubrick movies on the list because nobody ever talks about Kubrick yeah, yeah. but it's your favorite director <laughs> and thank god he's there like would it would it well sorry well no, see, I, just to take I, I, I'm happy enough with 2001 being there I'm happy enough with Barry Lyndon being there I could see arguments for The Shining the rest I and Paths of Glory maybe as well but it, like I'm like that's a lot for a filmmaker, yeah. I mean, like that's plenty, and like, and I and I like to adore those films, like specifically. So I'm not getting at them in that way. It's just certain films don't think of age as well, and in, in right. a way, this has age. But in in political ways, I think this has aged very well, probably. But in in cinematic kind of ways, I don't. I think as we get into that, let's get into more detail of the film. But similarly, the way I have similar feelings about Full Metal Jacket, say for example, which I don't think has aged very well at all. So. It's one of those things that I'm always kind of reassessing my kind of relation with Kubrick and his films as the years go by. We we should like just to, first of all to apologize for dragging you into the conversation that you seem to actively hate is taking place. No, I don't. Um, it's fine. I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, but the other thing is to like okay, fine. Let me give you a bit of good news, Jay. Go Are you pleased to hear that Caper Now is the 77th best film of all time? Listen, um, you know I love Caper now, but that doesn't belong up there. <laughs> 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 it's like, yeah, like it's a bizarre yeah, one. Just, it's just so random, like that. That's like I, yeah, I don't know why that one though. Just, Darren, you know the myth. China tell loves me why. China loves tell it. Why. China loves it. China loves it. it. It has it. Yeah, we talked about this. China, it's it's really big in China. China adores this why movie. Why though? <laughs> you you adore that movie. I do, but I just don't. I don't understand. <laughs> films I adore like that never get within a thousand of them. Just enjoy it. In, I, I just find them quite bizarre. Like, is it there the two is children no policy, isn't it? That's what it essentially, is. Essentially, <laughs> Wow. Sorry. I apologize um, to all of China and the fans of the show. So, Aoife. I also want to apologize to China. I think I think I think I recently uh, implied on an episode that Chinese people don't like having sex and that that's the reason why Disney movies don't don't have any sex. What I what I what I I I was making I was making a silly comment about the the um, the one child. Uh, policy. Well, well, the real... well, I'm looking forward to being cancelled with you, Andrew. Exactly. <laughs> the, 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 the real reason, of course, is that Disney is a uh, children's brand. 
Yeah. And and that's why there isn't um, all, all that Listen, sex in movies. Listeners, it's, it's, listeners can't see, but Andrew is sitting back with a cigar in his mouth talking about a sinister plot, a sinister communist international conspiracy <laughs> to replace all of our precious bodily fluids. I mean, obviously, um, the, the Chinese market does affect um, a lot of choices that Disney makes, but but that 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 was that was a silly thing. We did to talk say. about that on Kundun, to be fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, can... I love, by the way, that Andrew's like, I want to apologize for something. Now I'm going to dig even deeper. No, no, <laughs> I'm fine. I'm fine. Like, like I want to be very critical, but you can't just kind of make comments about yeah, that, yeah. that. Sweeping that, generalizations. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. yes. I think I, I was trying to be kind of like um, uh, funny or something. Uh, As was I, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> Darren, meanwhile, is cramming another stick of gum into his mouth and chewing frantically. Um, Aoife, <laughs> follow that, as they say. Yeah. But would this be on your own personal 250, your own 250 favorite movies? Um, I could see it getting in there. Um, but again, it just depends on the day and on, on, and on my mood that day. Like, you know... You know, you know, film like Failsafe. I don't know if you've ever seen that, the Sydney Lumet film. Yes. Um, is an interesting take on the same subject and a much more straight take on the same subject with a very, very interesting ending. Um, and you know, wh- why not put that in there instead? Because I think you know, not many people have probably seen Failsafe, never mind even heard of it. You know, so I think I'd I put Failsafe in there over Strange Love just because I'm awkward. <laughs> Couldn't one agree? Not, this is not, this is proper story. Leave. I love this, this. This is right here, yeah. And not just because you're awkward, but because you are arguably restoring some historical balance, right? Because this is one of the great stories about fail, failsafe, and and strange love. And this gets into something we may talk about, which is like because this is the movie where Kubrick becomes Kubrick, and you have to wrestle with the idea that maybe Kubrick becoming Kubrick was not good for everybody who was working with Kubrick or not working for the purposes that Kubrick wanted to work for. Um, Kubrick discovered in 1963, when he was making this movie about nuclear annihilation, let me talk some more about the production details later on, but he discovered that there was another film in the works from Sidney Lumet. Uh, the Entertainment Corporation of America had purchased the screen rights to Failsafe and planned to get the film to theaters before Strangelove. Kubrick was like, that's not going to happen. That would massively undermine my film eat into its box office and its cultural cachet. So Kubrick effectively launches a nuisance lawsuit claiming that Failsafe, the book, was ripped off from the book from which he was adapting Strangelove. He manages to convince Columbia Pictures to buy the rights to Failsafe after threatening to bankrupt Entertainment Corporation of America in the courts. He then gets Columbia to agree that not only... Will they wait until after Strangelove has been to theatres and been out of theatres and the award cycle has passed to release Failsafe? They will also not advertise Failsafe in a way that Kubrick would deem would be detrimental to Strangelove as a movie, which is kind of incredible. That is arguably one of the reasons why Sidney Lumet's Failsafe, which is well worth seeing, Aoife's entirely correct to single it out, uh, has been largely ignored and largely overlooked. It opened in October 1964, you know, a full 10 months after Strangelove. I kind of sucked up all the oxygen out of let's make a movie about this particular subject matter. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, that's a good recommendation, Aoife, is, is what I would say there. Um, and that is that is Kubrick being Kubrick. 
truly, truly being Kubrick in that case. And Andrew, so would Doctor Strange Love be on your own personal two hundred and fifty, your own two hundred and fifty favorite movies? Um, would would it would it would it be on my two fifty? I I I think it would. Yeah, I th- I think it's right up my street. It's kind of the the I I I think I referenced that a little earlier, and kind of is the extent to which the these two questions kind of become the same, is that I personally think it's important. Therefore, it like <laughs> is important <laughs> and it ought to be on the list rather than kind of like oh this is a preoccupation of mine. I think everyone should have this preoccupation, <laughs> you know. Um, so yes, it would be on my list. My list is the and list. and I love I love. Um, uh, sellers, um, I don't care what you say, Darren. <laughs> L- <laughs> later on in in the um, turns out, Sellers was was a terrible guy, and it's like I know everybody knows that. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but sacrifice live goats on goats on the set. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, and Andrew's like, yeah, but it was a good performance. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, the. Um, so no, yes, it, it 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 would be on on my own list. Um, and for myself, then probably not. I think we talked about this before. I respect Kubrick a lot more than I like Kubrick. I find Kubrick incredibly cynical and bleak and depressing, and his view of human nature incredibly wearying. Particularly when I watch and lots accurate. of these. Uh, perhaps like that. That's <laughs> something we'll talk about when we get into the spoiler zone. I'm much I'm much more of a Spielberg sentimentalist than I am a kind of a Kubrick cynic. Um, and so it probably wouldn't be on my 250 if I were putting again I'd actually put The Shining quite high on my own personal 250 I like and admire this film a lot I think it's darkly funny I think it's one of his better films but it probably wouldn't be a movie that I would want to come back to on a regular basis because I don't think it would leave me feeling particularly good about the world in which we live Um, all right then and then finally Jay if listeners have not seen Dr. Strangelove would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device? Yeah, sure. And like the good thing about it is, like, even if you are, if it is a bit bearing down, you it's only ninety five minutes long. So, like mm. in the Kubrick uh, kind of canon, canon, it's a breeze. Like in their length terms, <laughs> like you know, uh, in other terms, it's tougher. But it like it's a handy enough watch in that regard. Like it's not, it's not gonna kill you. <laughs> it's it's not it's not unending. It's not like three-hour kind of. It's not humbling. the human condition. No, it's, yeah. it's so it's okay, and it, you will get some laughs out of it. I mean, it ain't it ain't as funny as Talladega Nights, but then that's the greatest <laughs> masterpiece of this decade, century. So that that's a different issue. I can I'll be on to talk about that eventually one night when that will come into two fifty, and we will have a great conversation. Is this is this a genuine opinion? Yes, it is. I, I think it's the best. <laughs> comedy I love that Andrew's like, is this a bit? Do I have no, to check if yeah. this is a bit? It's my no, favorite like, comedy of this century, genuinely. Because I, I, I like um um like a, a a lot of the kind of Adam McKay um uh, I like him when he when he did the early funny ones as opposed to the <laughs> making out. But uh yes, yeah. Oh yeah, no no I agree with you on, on that specifically on his yeah. recent Netflix yeah, yeah. debacle. Yes. Uh, um <laughs> Don't even I love that Andrew's like, we must distance ourselves very quickly. Don't even get me started on voice, Darren. Don't. No, we're joking. Yes, we, we've had we can go, we can go, we can we, go no, rounds on Vice. No, we we can't like, go rounds. I can't. Like, I, can't, I, just I feel can't. sorry for Ethan Andrew, but Jay <laughs> and I can go rounds. This is a podcast section for 50 minutes at the end. Because <laughs> there's a lot of people, like, including myself, who have a lot of affection for, like, stepbrothers and the other guys. Anchorman. The other guys. Um, oh, wait, no, it's, Anchorman it, is, is yeah. Jay Roach, isn't it? Uh, I come on, Adam McKay. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah. 
He's had a, yeah. had a hell of a run in the 2000s. Yeah, I'm, I must I must revisit Talladega Nights. I've kind of derailed that <laughs> podcast a little bit. Uh, Talladega Nights is my absolute favorite. It's a masterpiece. I, I, will, I will agree. This is the thing where I'm like, Jay, you make it hard for me to agree with you, but it is a very good comedy. <laughs> Thank you, Darren. I'll take that. That's, <laughs> a good, that's better than anything I was expecting, to be quite honest. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's like when I'm like, people massively underrate Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, and Jay's like, the best Halloween movie. And I'm like, I'm not with this guy. <laughs> you are with me, Darren. Deep down, you're in his crew. All the way, baby. <laughs> God help us. God help us all. All right. And so, Aoife, if listeners have not seen Teledega Nights, would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream Doctor Strange Love to a local device? Actually, I would recommend both. Yeah, go for it. I mean, yes. Um, yeah, Strange Love. It's you know, it's of its time, um, and maybe. You know, it's as cynical as it needs to be. Just watch watching it this time around. It felt very close to the bone and less funny than I had thought it was. But that's because of, of the times we're living in. Absolutely, pause pause the podcast, go and watch it. It, it is, and it's it's great. You know, you, you'll enjoy it. And we should notice actually on the on the runtime, it's worth noting that like Kubrick apparently cut this thing ruthlessly. He cut it to the bone. Um, apparently, early test screenings were not working. So he just cut out huge portions of it, which is why it is only 95 minutes. It, it moves. It really moves. Um, Andrew, if listeners have not seen Dr. Strangelove, would they, should they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device? Absolutely. No, I can remember the first time I saw it and it was a delight. And that was with all of the kind of expectation. And if it encourages people to go see a lot of uh, Kubrick movies, it's worthwhile. If it encourages people to go see a lot of Sellers movies, be worthwhile not uniformly but, but, um, <laughs> if, it, if it encourages but, people to want to build their own device it'll have been worthwhile <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly death sand build it like sand. If this is, science <laughs> if this if this inspires like the the end of all things then it'll be like a, and in only an hour and a half <laughs> like um, beautifully that's just sufficient <laughs> Yes, you really could say it's a seller's market here. Hey. Um, aye, aye, aye. You're and, petering out. <laughs> you know, people are so excited to see this. They were cue bricking. No, darn, no, no, you're bricking it. No, I went too. Okay, I went too far. Sorry. I will stand for this movie, though. Um, but yes, if you have not seen Doctor Strangelove, I would wholeheartedly recommend it. It is only 95 minutes. I said there it's not one of my 250 favorite movies. I have seen lots of movies. So <laughs> it not being one of my 250 favorite movies isn't a knock against it. Um, I think it's... Oh, it could be number 655 or something. You know, way yeah, up there. It's like way, way in there. It's certainly in like the top 50 movies I've watched so far this year. Definitely. That's, that's what I will say. Uh, in April. Right, um, but um, no, I, I I would wholeheartedly recommend it. It's it is it is dark, but it's fun, and it's it's really bleak, and in a way that is, I think, quite pointed. Like Andrew's entirely right when I say that I don't like Kubrick's cynicism, but it's that doesn't make it inaccurate. I think it's very well observed about human nature. I think it's very well observed about the way in which the world that we have built works, uh, and I think that you know, Aoife kind of alluded to it. It does perhaps have a resonance that extends beyond the particular context in which it was made. Um, and we'll maybe talk about that on the other side of the spoiler zone. 
find his own. So, Aoife, what is Doctor Strangelove about for you? Um, it's about, I think it's about bureaucracy. And it's about, I think it's very cynical about the military in that um, all of the, the problems with the film are because everybody's just following the protocols. Nobody is thinking of, nobody's stopping and taking a step back and thinking about the consequences of their actions. They're just following the protocols that have been laid down, no matter how illogical they are. You know, it's it's seen through, throughout the film, not just in, in the terms of the um, you know, the, the bomber plane heading the bomber planes heading towards Russia, but like a simple thing like you know, when um the Peter Sellers character um needs money for the, the payphone, you know, and he gets back, it, he gets it out of Coca-Cola. Yeah, when he gets it out of the Coca-Cola. The Coca-Cola company, yeah. You'll have to answer yeah. to the Coca-Cola company. The Coca-Cola. Yeah, just silly wonderful things like that you know it's it's about how people can be just so obsessed with with following the process that's been they did they're not allowed to think for themselves and it's just you know the consequences of that and just how how dangerous that is you know it's just you know i mean i love i love george c scott in this film i think he's, he's absolutely wonderful i think i, th- I think he steals, steals it from from salaries to be honest and um you know that he he can't believe the Russian ambassador is allowed into the war room where he can see the big board. You know, it's just <laughs> <laughs> the big board. <laughs> it's... And then he comes back to it the bit later on where he's like, "Look at the big board." <laughs> I, yeah, I really, I'm actually, I'm just just thinking about certain scenes. I'm, I'm starting to laugh, you know. And um, for my part, the you know of the three performances Sellers has in this film, I I think I used to love his Doctor Strange love. But now I think it's his president. I think it's just it's just a wonderful, wonderful creation. I think um, we we have to name every character. Oh God! <laughs> what is it, <laughs> Mergen Muffley or something? Uh, yeah, yeah. Muffley. Yeah, Mer- Merkin. Yeah, well, again, uh, to bring it back to, is this the is this the horniest movie ever? We'll, we'll come it's back. It's like to a Noel Coward, but like like really kind of um, bleak. <laughs> you know, well, like an old coward. <laughs> what, uh, what I what I want to bring that something that kind of Eva said there because I do think like this is a quintessentially Kubrick uh, film in that like Kubrick's films are often about the idea that like m- mankind builds. St- Things, structures, societies, worlds. Systems. That, like, what? Systems. Or, Systems, yeah. basically, yeah. But mankind builds worlds that, like, end up robbing us of our humanity. And so, like, and again, you can see it throughout this filmography. Like, the military in, in Full Metal Jacket. The Overlook Hotel uh, in The Shining, for example. We discussed it last year, you know, the, the way in which Alex is kind of, like, brainwashed and rehabilitated against his will in A Clockwork Orange. Um, and, like, here, obviously... You have the idea that all of this happens in spite of, like, everybody wanting it not to happen. Everything that happens here is practically automated. Ripper makes the initial call, and he sets the dominoes falling, but, like, Ripper is dead two-thirds of the way through the movie. Um, And the, the thing still happens because this system has been put in place with no human safeguards. As Aoife said, nobody questions what's happening there. But also the fact that it's designed in such a way because it's meant to be a deterrent, because it's meant to, like, 
if we can't reach the president, we're supposed to be able to nuke the Russians. And, you know, if we can't reach yeah. the premier, we're supposed to be able to retaliate against the Americans. If you end up with if 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 we if uh, if communication is broken yeah um with base we continue on our mission if we can't uh, continue to to the primary target we go to the secondary target if we can't go to the secondary target we need to choose another um target on the long Long, that's them actually kind of using initiative, but it, it's 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 without well, he does, knowing. He describes it as initiative, like like that, that's what Turgis yes. describes it as initiative, which is I kind of love. Uh, yeah. but like it, but it is it's it's a system that's designed to be inhuman because it's designed to like be safeguard itself and protect itself from perceived failures and those failures within this cold inhuman system and again the war room is just a perfect design because it's this black cold lifeless space with all this eerie light kind of they radiating into it they do have a buffet. Um, and Andrew, you'll be pleased to hear that apparently the FIFA boardroom is designed to resemble the war room from Doctor Strange, love. Apparently that was a conscious design choice that was made. Did we see and that apparently- in the Tim Ross film? Was that, was that in that? The- yes, it was. Yep. Because Darren made me slash encouraged me to watch it. Look like Bond villains. Yeah. yeah. But they had a funeral in a boardroom, if I remember correctly. Yes. One of the great visuals of United Passions. What a film. Um Terrific he was married. Was, was buried in a boardroom. What more could you ask for? Um, but like, and I, I also love I mean small detail. <laughs> I kind of do too. Yeah. Um, um, the second greatest comedy of the twenty first century. <laughs> steady on, steady on. That's Scotty. But, <laughs> um, but like, like that the idea that yeah, these kind of like. And how absurd and how heightened it is, and apparently, like, how much of this is based in, like, the actual reality of the situation. You know, so, for example, things like the doomsday device, which, you know, people insisted at the time was completely improbable, but it turned out that, no, no, that they've actually, you know... Several years after the movie, the Soviet Union deployed a doomsday system similar to the one depicted in the film. And it still exists, according to, like, Bruce G. Blair, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute. You know, there's another story about, like, Bob Shear, who published a book in 1983 called, and I quote, With Enough Shovels. Shear quoted a Pentagon expert, figuring the U.S. population could survive a nuclear war by digging itself underground until hostilities passed. And here's the quote from the Pentagon expert. If there are enough shovels to go around, everyone's going to make it. It's the dirt that does it. You know, you have situations like uh, Herman Kahn's On Thermonuclear War, which was published in 1960 and a huge influence on this movie. You'll notice that I think Turgeson has a book on his, death, uh, book on his desk called is it World Population and Megadeth, I think is what it is, uh, which is a term I believe co- that comes from Kahn. But basically Kahn said, yeah, um, what you should do is you should build these doomsday devices that will scare people. And here's the one that absolutely terrifies me, right? Which is the the novel that this is based on, which is is Red Alert, which is written by a RAF pilot, Peter George. And again, Kubrick wanted to adapt it originally like as a straight thriller. And we'll maybe talk about why he changed it later on. But apparently it had been passed around the Pentagon as like an example of how things had gone, how things could go wrong. And like Robert S. McNamara, the Secretary of Defense at the time, was worried that like he was worried that a rogue American official could start a nuclear war. And here's the thing. 
Coded switches to prevent the unauthorized use of nuclear weapons were finally added to the control systems of American missiles and bombers in the early 1970s. The Air Force was not pleased and considered the new security measures to be an insult, a lack of confidence in its personnel. And here's the kicker. Although the Air Force now denies this claim, according to more than one source contacted by the New Yorker magazine, the code necessary to launch a missile was set to be the same at every Air Force base. Zero, 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 zero. Well, I mean, you wouldn't guess it, though, would you? Because you, you don't even go for four zeros. Like, I mean, that's the standard uh, thing. That's like, that, that, that's something that, like, Piers Morgan was, like, <laughs> cracking, like, consistently on celebrities' phones. It's like, it's yes. either one, two, three, four, or zero, 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 zero. Yeah. <laughs> I, have you watched MacGruber, the TV show yet? Not yet. 69, 69, 69, 69. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> but like the idea that, yeah, you you have this idea. And again, of course, the fact that so much of this is based on something like close to reality. Like the, the character of Strangelove, who we might actually talk about because he's, he's a fascinating character. He only really has two scenes in this movie. He gets the big climactic one at the end and he gets a sequence early on where he describes mutually assured destruction. And he gets a couple of reaction shots, which are kind of interesting throughout the film. But he's one of the most distinctive characters. I think, you know, he looks a bit like the character from um is it metropolis uh particularly with his hair and i think that the black glove that he has is something that sellers came up with when he saw that uh kubrick had the heavy black glove to help him change the lights because the lights would have been hot and he was like yeah can i get one of those and can i wear that and play the the role but apparently um so it's been speculated that henry kissinger was one of the models for strange love this doesn't add up historically um, Kissinger was an obscure professor at Harvard when the film was released and wouldn't become National Security Advisor until 1969. However, what I quite <clears throat> like is maybe a strong word for this, but what I find interesting is the suggestion from several people who know Kissinger that maybe Kissinger modeled himself on Dr. Strangelove <laughs> after the film came out. Um, well, all but- I can say about that is, and you can feel free to cut this out of the podcast, but <laughs> if this is going out in April, I really hope he's gone by then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just to say. Okay, you're giving Kissinger a kiss off. Please, I'm premier kiss off, uh, indeed. Uh, but so, based, there are three sources uh, that people tend to point to, uh, or four sources, actually. The first one is Herman Kahn, who's a physicist, Rand Corporation think tanker, and the author that we mentioned of On Thermonuclear War. They reference the Rand Corporation. They call it the Bland Corporation. They, they do. They specifically yeah. reference it as well. Um, like in the movie, Strangelove mentions an associate and argues that nuclear war is survivable, which is what Khan did. And Khan himself has said the character is part myself with a touch of Werner von Braun. Um, and here, here is von Braun was apparently a major influence of the character's like German accent. Um, and by the way, uh, you know, you kind of like you could argue that uh, a source of his poorly repressed nazism as well where von braun obviously nazi scientist uh developed the v2 bomb uh v2 rocket launcher during kind of world war ii emigrated the u.s to create rockets for nasa and became something of a national hero in the 1960s and so would have been very much on the mind while this is happening i like mort Stahl once quipped that von braun's autobiography i aimed for the stars should have been subtitled but sometimes i hit london instead uh, <laughs> <laughs> um 
Another arguable influence was Edward Teller, who was the thickly accented, like, uh, physicist come technocrat oh, yes. who developed the H-bomb. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah, you know that. Yeah, um, he, 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 he worked on, like, the Trinity test and the, yeah. the, um, with, um, with Oppenheimer, our friend. Friend of the podcast, Robert <laughs> right. Oppenheimer. Uh, but yeah, and apparently he was, resp- he was responsible for scuppering Oppenheimer's career, if I remember correctly. Is, is that fair to say, as our Oppenheimer expert? Yeah, so the, 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 um, as I recall, yeah, that he certainly had a hand in it. And I believe that his, I, um, as far as I recall, his wife never forgave him. But uh, Robert himself, I think, was philosophical enough to kind of not hold it against him. I think they, they, they would have continued to um, have some sort of a re- professional relationship, I think. But yeah, no, it, it was, um, you're, right in, you're right in what you're saying. I'm trying to remember a book now, and I'm probably getting a lot of it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then there's obviously the suggestion as well that he may have been inspired by game theorist John von Neumann, um, who again commuted oh. between the Rand... Yeah. Oh, okay. In, you, you know von Neumann as well, yeah? No, no, in the same crowd. They did as as in von Neumann and Oppenheimer both worked together at Princeton. Um with Einstein actually. Um yeah. So it was And it apparently, was, yeah. It was a nice part part of that year. I've actually just read that book, the Oppenheimer book, the American Prometheus last year. So It's fantastic, uh, isn't it's it? It's a great read. It's a terrific read, yeah. Epic. Piaget was there too at Princeton at the same time. So we're all looking forward to the new Nolan movie, right? Can't wait. That's why I read it for in preparation there. <laughs> Oh really? We don't. Absolutely. No, they, they, no, they, no, I, no, I don't. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. That's all the best I can do. Great casting. It's Killian Murphy. Murphy yeah, it's yeah. great casting. I will say so that. good. He did, like I, I really believe him as Oppenheimer. Sorry, Dark. Sorry. But yeah, sorry. No, no, no. It's it's all it's all good. But like von Neumann apparently was like he advised Truman and Eisenhower on nuclear war strategy urging both of them to bomb the Soviet Union into oblivion before the Soviets could attack the United States to wage what they called preemptive war. And like, here's a quote from von Neumann explaining his philosophy. If you say tomorrow, I see today. If you say five o'clock, I say one o'clock as well. And again, the idea, like again, that all of this was happening in the consciousness, that we were like this close to nuclear annihilation. And you've had people making these arguments that you're seeing in this movie. I mean, like there's some of the most uh, radical proponents of mutually assured destruction, like argued that you shouldn't even build fallout shelters because that will just encourage you to consider using the bomb. So you should just well, not build fallout shelters. I think it's worth, worth mentioning, actually, just in the context of the Oppenheimer book, that at the end of the war, when they were considering the use of the atomic bomb in Japan, they, they basically... There was arguments from Oppenheimer and various other scientists that he just had to invite the Japanese ambassador to show him a test of it instead of bombing the and country. Would have done the same. I would have done the same thing. And the reason the only the real reason he bombed them was to keep Russia out of Japan, essentially, because they would have got to a certain point and Russia would have got involved. So it was like it was just for the sake yeah. that he just used it. That's madness yeah. in that regard. So because they they insisted on an on an unconditional surrender from yeah, the but Japanese, the, but the, but the, 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 the grounds that the, oh yeah no absolutely yeah, the, yeah. the 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 only conditions that Japan wanted was to keep um, the emperor in place. Wasn't to keep it, the like, emperor, or, yeah, exactly, which they got. Yeah. So the, the, the it it's it's, there is a. There is a lie told, um, like widened for far the yep. um about the necessity, the necessity of it. Of the, it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that that the all of these people worked hard, like night and day, for years to develop a bomb before um, Adolf Hitler 
um, uh, could produce one. Yeah. Now it now it became like obvious at a certain point that that, that, that Adolf Hitler wasn't anywhere close to, and maybe it was to do with Heisenberg trying to kind of um, stall it. Maybe not. Um, we don't know. But um, anyway, that's um, yeah. They they and um, it 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 needs to be said over and over again that, uh, that those people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki were were, were not. Kind of uh, uh, necessary, casualty, necessary casualties of war. No, so far as any casualty of war is necessary, but um, and those were targets that were chosen specifically because they were civilian esque as well. If I remember, um, there's a lot of arguments about why they were chosen, and part of the reason was that they weren't just military outposts. Yeah. Um, anyway, sorry, but uh, again, but again and again, I think the movie kind of comes back to that where. Like you have this recurring motif of even before strange love is is kind of introduced, you have you know Merkin Muffley talking about how he won't <laughs> go down in history as the greatest mass murderer since Adolf Hitler, for example. And then later on, you have Strange Love saluting him as Hitler, and you have this moment like where Turgidson is praying, like when they think they've got all the bombs out, when they've destroyed three of the four rogue bombers, and they all the others are returning to base because they managed to crack the signal. You have this shot of Strange Love, which is is fast. It's one of the most striking shots in the movie, and the movie is full of striking shots where he's just sitting in the shadows completely separate from anybody else in the room and just kind of watching and it's one of those things that i think is kind of maybe getting at this question or this idea and again this is something that is is difficult to articulate because it's an idea that you take to its extreme and it's inherently absurd and offensive but it's something that i think you see bubbling through american pop culture in the 60s and 70s which is the idea that the Second World War was fought by the Americans as the good war. The myth that, like, it, it was about defeating fascism, democracy versus fascism. It was the Americans are the heroes. It's the war that you point to and you say, this is a justifiable war as we understand the concept of war. And the irony and the juxtaposition of that with, yes, but we also went into Germany and we took all their Nazi scientists out and we gave them homes and we gave them jobs and we gave them state pensions. And we use the knowledge that they gain to build the world in which we live today. And is there a sense in which we have maybe somehow not necessarily defeated that, but have in some ways still been shaped by it or still been molded by it or still integrated some of it without necessarily suggesting the worst implications of it, but more the idea of a world where that scale of destruction is possible and, and even something that is inevitable or treated as inevitable perhaps well, that was the case in west germany as well where like the 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 that's what the the le carre book a small town in germany is about it's about bonn and the rise of kind of like former nazis to kind of like positions of prominence in the in the new um west germany and 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 because immediately kind of after kind of like nuremberg there was a kind of a, a a realization that like okay that's all done with, um let's kind of make 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 the most of a bad situation and welcome these these um, uh, Nazis who haven't been executed back into kind of, uh, prominent roles and uh, like uh, you know make use of them, um because the 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 enemy now has changed, um, 
And also even the idea that, yeah, that scale of destruction, like we looked at what happened in the Second World War and we said that was horrific and impossible and unimaginable and unlike anything that had happened before. And it was. And then it's like, but now after that, we can drop, you know, the, the opening narration describes how powerful the bomb is. And it's more powerful than every piece of ordinance that was dropped in the Second World War. It's the idea that, yeah, that the post-war yeah. situation is shaped by can, the draft. Can I do something very boring and and talk about kind of how... Um, I do boring stuff all the time. This is you take... Yeah, no, there's a website. Uh, I might have referenced it before, but if, if, if you look up Nuke Map, it's the kind of, um, I think it's a researcher... Who runs it basically? And they, they, to, 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 to give you guys an, an idea. So you guys live in kind of like Dublin or the outskirts, right? So um, the Tsar Bomba, it was the largest uh, uh, thermonuclear weapon ever detonated in Russia in 1961. So that's like um, it's like um, uh, 70 years ago. Or sorry. No, no, it, 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 it's uh, it's it's sixty years ago. Sixty um, years ago, yeah, exactly. The, the um, if if that was put on the spire, say, or like at the GPO, it would create a six-kilometer uh, fireball radius. Everything would be vaporized within six kilometers of that. That's from everything from Boucherstown to um, Artane and from Ratfarnham to Ballymun would 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 be vaporized and that 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 uh, fatalities would be universal and then like beyond that there is a blast radius where um there's universal injuries so nobody is unscathed and uh, most buildings collapse that uh, that stretches as far as Roundwood in Wicklow uh, Nace in Kildare on Shocklin in Mead Balbriggan in Dublin that's all like um, destroyed, and um, then thermal radiation where um, there's third degree burns to everybody. That 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 stretches out, and it's often painless because it it destroys the the layers of the skin, the including nerves, the yeah yeah, including the 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 the, the nerves. Um, that goes out as far as um, Dundalk. Uh, Mullingar and Carlo, kind of in Ireland, and it did, it, it, and and then there's light blast radius where, like, say you you see a flash, you approach a window, and and the glass smashes. That goes as far as like County Down, in Northern Ireland, Longford, Jesus. Kilkenny. Um. So like the the and that was 1961, as I said. So I was so like just like three years before this. Three yeah. Exactly. This, um, and that, 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 that's kind of like what we're talking about there. And you can look at your own city. Um, and, and, figure out and, what would and be. exactly. And that, that's just a thermonuclear weapon with no radiation. Um, well, I look forward to doing that later and cheering myself up. That's, yeah. that's going to be great. <laughs> that's the, 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 the <laughs> gather the kids around the laptop. <laughs> Cause like we, we spoke about a Luga lab, which was the Island in the kind of Marshall islands that just, um, uh, disappeared. They put a bomb there and it was like, uh, let's let's see what happens <laughs> you know a nuclear test and the 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 island um was entirely vaporized it doesn't exist it's it's it's, it's now just kind of like a hollow in the ocean where there was once an island um gods yeah 
anyway. It is is completely insane. And again, like things like the idea of the doomsday. We device, made that. I think, yeah. That Otto Otto Hahn, the Nobel laureate, like suggested in 1955 that all you would need to do is bury 10 cobalt bombs, each the size of a naval vessel, and that would destroy all of mankind. Um, which is, again, it's it's that speech that, you know, Strangelove gives about how remarkably simple it would be to build, because when you bury bombs, there's no limit to size as well. So you don't even need to place them, and you can destroy all life on the planet, um, which is mm. absolutely incredible to contemplate and just to wrap your head around. And I guess, actually, that's that's... A delightful segue, Darren said, um, <laughs> into talking about the question of timelessness and timeliness as it relates to the movie. I mean, do so, Aoife, I think you mentioned this first when we talked about the, the kind of opening, uh, the opening section. But like you suggested that watching this in 2022 was a different experience than, say, watching it 10, 15 years ago or watching it when you were younger. Like, is this a movie that still resonates? Is it is it particular to the atomic age or does it speak to broader anxieties about people, mankind and our relationship to the world? I think it's uh, got broader scope. I mean, I can understand how in the 60s it would have been quite relevant back then, um, you know, during the Cold War. But today, um, so and when, when I first saw it, you know, the Cold War was... It was in the past, so that would have been quite quite alien to me. It wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have resonated with me at all. But but watching it now, it's more the um, it's more that sort of the paranoia. It's more the sort of the general Ripper character. Um, and you know, it very much reminded me of of the attack on the Capitol building and just the the sort of you know things that the the Q QAnon people believe. You know, it's sort of. You know, whereas you've General Ripper believing that the the Ruskies are um you know contaminating the water, fluoridating our water, yeah, yeah, um, you know, and then you have the deal. No, I was just going to say there's a, there's a lot of people in this country like who believe that oh, yeah. like the fluoride is uh, mind control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and then you know you you look at what happened um, on in the Capitol building in the U.S. and you have you know all these sort of QAnon types believing these weird conspiracy theories and and you have you have a president who was egging them on at the time pretty much you know it's um and they're yeah. waiting to hang around for uh, waiting for JFK Jr. to come back <laughs> oh yeah well that's it yeah <laughs> well, that's also, just, like that could easily you know, be a subplot and, this, and like, with what's uh, what's happening today with the Ukraine with Russia, Russia and the Ukraine you know Clearly, you know, the world is not it's not a, in a very stable place at the moment and probably hasn't been for quite some time. So it's definitely it definitely feeds into our into our anxieties, I would think. You know, I think it's a, it's a very relevant film today. Um, Who knows what's happening in April? Mm. Yeah. Go yes. We, which is we'll now. All, we'll all be talking about <laughs> Taiwan. Or... <laughs> yeah. But I mean. <laughs> Like this is, and again, this is something where, when the movie was released, there was no real sense of how to respond to it. It's always fun to go back and to look at contemporary reviews and to see what film critics make of it, because you have like Bosley Crowther from the New York Times, like talking about how you know Stanley Kubrick's new film called Doctor Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb is beyond any question the most shattering, sick joke I've come across. I am troubled by the feeling which runs all through the film of discredit and even contempt for our whole defense establishment, up to and even including the hypothetical commander-in-chief. 
And apparently Crowther was so confused by it, so of two minds, that he went and saw it twice. And he reviewed it twice for the New York Times. And here's like his his first review was, I'm not sure what to make of it. And his second review is, but no, Mr. Kubrick is shooting far beyond this satiric range. He is firing his blasts of derision and mockery at everyone. He is telling us in this comic fancy, which ends up not a comedy at all, but a very adroit and horrendous politico science fiction burlesque, that more than the generals and the majors and the cowboys who fly the bombing planes are mentally unstable and unreliable. He's saying that at the top level scientists with their computers and their mechanical brains, the diplomats, the experts, the prime ministers, and even the president of the United States are all fuddy-duddies or maniac monsters who are completely unable to control the bomb. In short, Kubrick is supporting in this grimly sardonic exercise, which seems to be currently fashionable, to wit, nothing can be done about the bomb. In an extremely clever screenplay that reaches hilarious peaks at time, such as the bit about a thick-headed major in a dire emergency still recoiling from rifling coins in a Coca-Cola machine, and with the help of some excellent performers who range from screamingly funny to grave, he is spelling out the thesis that man has got himself into a bind, and that, sooner or later, somebody is going to get reckless and make a mistake, push the wrong button, and we're all going to be blown to kingdom come. This may give satanic satisfaction to those who are so cynical or confused by the dread of what might happen that they can actually enjoy a feeling of revenge. It may give a sense of grim achievement to those who think that something should be done to show the unsuspecting public how dangerous is the menace of the bomb. But the trouble with it is as a thesis for Morton's satire in a film that is based on more than wild imagination than on basic rational truth. Indeed, it is a dangerous indulgence of that emotional condition that derives from extreme anxieties and assumptions that the possible triggering of the bomb. To make a terrible joke of this matter is not only defeatist and destructive of morale, it is to invite a kind of laughter that is only foolish and hysterical. Uh, Crowther apparently would publish a third article on the subject just a couple of months later, basically read, with the read headline... Read the entire thing. <laughs> 4,000 words. <laughs> The headline is nothing is nothing sacred is the headline of Bosley Crowther's third New York Times article about how much he hates Dr. Strange. No, no, absolutely not. Nothing is sacred. The whole thing, while cleverly written and most skillfully directed and played, tends to be a bit too contemptuous of our defense establishment for my comfort and taste. It is showing at the Victoria and the Bayonet. The other picture that runs to mockery is Pando Berman's production of the prize the Irving Wallace novel about a group of winners of the Nobel Awards. While the area it covers is not as sensitive as that in Strangelove, it does cause discomfort with the aspersions it casts upon the intelligence and dignity of the Nobel Awards. So there is a sense like of like the critical establishment looking at movies like Strangelove and going, they're, they're making fun of things that they shouldn't be making fun of, like Nobel Prize winners and Nazis. I find that bizarre. Like, like the... the this idea of kind of reverence and of of reverence being kind of like an appropriate um response Attitude to anything have. like especially like for people who believe in the sacred like um to think that things in like uh, you know they, they these like very conservative people who believe in god to think that not only is there a god but 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 there's all these other things. Andrew, you sound like a commie atheist. No, no, no. Like, I'm joking. I'm, uh, that's a line from the movie. I'm 
But the, you the, do, no, in fact, you do sound like a commie atheist. I'm not right that either. But uh, the, like, like if 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 you believe in um, kind of like um, like actual gods, there is a distinction between them and all this nonsense that that that, that you also that believe in, and a recognition that 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 these things are all fallible and are built by fallible uh, uh, people. And I I don't think Kubrick is is. Uh, I I I'd agree more with yourself, Darren. In that I I I think the the cynicism isn't about people per se. I think yeah, it's, it's about, about the systems we build. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the 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 the, the part of it that um, that that Aoife points out the very funny scene, um, which kind of um, which 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 the reviewer also liked, where where the it was like the machine. shoot it, shoot it with your gun. Um, that's what the bullets are for. Um, it's 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 terrific. Where 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 it's like you have to answer to the Coca Cola Corporation. It's 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 coming face to face, like with 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 being human uh, beings with 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 brains and like kind of um, thoughts a will and, and a thought, thoughts of your own. Yeah. Um, I'm. And like, I just want to like, because some the some of the American press's reaction to this is insane. Like, you have Philip K. Skewer, who is the um, which sounds like a name from the movie Philip K. Skewer, and he's a film critic. Um, but he was the film editor at the L.A. Times, and he says, and here's a quote from the opening line of his review: "A publicist at Columbia, which is distributing the picture, assured me that it would be quote my cup of tea. <laughs> After suffering through two screenings of Doctor Strangelove." I would sooner drink hemlock. Um, he goes on to describe the movie as, and I quote, an evil thing about <laughs> an evil thing. And then you have like Robert uh, Strauss Hoop, Robert Strauss Hoopé, um, who was a, a like expert in geopolitics, um, writing letters. And again, I just want to, to, again, apologies, I won't read too much of this, but the raucous humor, gross improbability, and high-pitched inanities of Dr. Strangelove rule it out as a work of cinematic art. As a work of entertainment, it will satisfy only those who mistake the deformed for the comic. I ignore the inwardness of Mr. Kubrick's purpose. Anyone who cares to scan the Soviet press and the communist press in other lands will note that it is one of the principal communist objectives to drive a wedge between the American people and their military leaders, Kubrick's creation certainly serves this purpose. So you have a real sense of America not knowing how to react to Strange Love when it comes out in 1964, which is probably, um, isn't it probably the first film to be mocking of military in real terms? Like, uh, like, I mean, I'm sure there's been the kind of light satire before that, whatever, but like, I mean, you've got the code, the Hayes code still enforced at that stage. Um, like you're only you're probably about four or five years away from not being dismantled properly, uh, at least three or four years anyway. So you you got things where responsibilities there's you know results the moral, of the moral certitude, the moral of, thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where of, that's of the moral character of America. But like this, what this scene suggests that there's no real moral character to it except just failing humans flowing floundering around trying to fix things they broke. It's a... constantly <laughs> uh, like, and that's funny, but it's also kind of terrifying. In the sense that, like, are our leaders incompetent or the omniscient as the American people might have believed post World War Two? They're just really and, horny. Yeah, and really horny for the precious bodily fluids. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, that that is that is a segue to the point that I I want I want to get to in a moment. But like, it is worth noting that like, 
outside of America, the movie was very, very warmly received, as you might expect. Yeah. Um, in the best, in the best civil and democratic tradition of America, said the leading paper of Milan. De Zeit of Dusseldorf, West Germany, said Dr. Strangelove is the most serious picture from America in a long time. And then, under the subheadline, communists also love it, the claim <laughs> for the picture has not followed political lines. The communist newspapers, Lunata of Rome or Humanité of Paris, joined in stressing its qualities, with perhaps a little more stress on the point of lapooning American insanity. The happiest surprise of the year, La Unita said. However, it deplored the reference to a carousing Soviet premier and the portrait of a Soviet ambassador. Um, Humanité also referred to spots of bad taste. Uh, box office reports from Scandinavia, Italy, and France also indicated it was the most popular film attraction in several years. So I do kind of like the idea that this is this is the arrival of the 60s in some sense, in that it is like countercultural. It is like... It, it's, it's Terry kind of, Southern is a, is a yeah, countercultural uh, measure there, really. Bringing the sort of that kind of irreverence, that beat generation, post-beat generation, I guess, uh, weirdness to it. But I, I would have read one of his books years ago, Candy, which is very uh, <laughs> very <laughs> odd and horny booking as well. So I, I imagine a lot of that kind of stuff uh, would have come from Southern. Um, and he was very, in a very dark sense of humour and a very odd man. And we end up working quite a lot on film, actually, uh, post this. But I think he had a fun with Kubrick, like practically everybody that worked with Kubrick did about kind of who contributed what and so on. I mean, yeah, this is, we should probably just very quickly talk about Southern and Kubrick then. Cause like, yeah, so basically the book was serious. Red Alert was a serious thriller. It took it incredibly dramatically. It will surprise nobody to learn that one of the first things Kubrick changed when he made into comedy was he changed the names of the characters. Um, unfortunately, the very serious drama Red Alert did not feature President Muffley. Um, but when we talk about Kubrick... Backguano? <laughs> <laughs> Sergeant Bacuano. but I, I Turgidson, Turgidson, um, Jack D. Ripper, um, so many great names uh, in here as well. It's the is it the the Burpley or Burpleson? <laughs> um, they're silly. Like the, they are this is a very silly movie. <laughs> it, it is a very which is the the great thing about it. But I mean, I do think that let's talk about like. Kubrick as a director and Kubrick uh, and Scott because one of the things that Kubrick does here is this is the point where you start to see and, and Jay kind of mentioned the cult of Kubrick this is the point at which you start to see Kubrick really manipulating the actors around him very famously George C. Scott um, who was cast in the role and he wanted to play the role as a more tragic low-key grounded dramatic performance and Kubrick basically said yeah sure we'll do that but um, before we do that can you give me a practice take just a rehearsal take where you go as loud and as over the top as you can. And, you know, we'll, we'll just we'll film it, but we'll, we'll film the take that you want to make. And that'll be the one we use in the movie. I just want to see how big you can go to go cartoon, have some fun. And then apparently Scott went to the premiere of the movie and discovered that all of the takes that Kubrick had used were the ones that he was assured were not in the movie as well. And you have things like the character of um, King Kong, who, as Jay alluded to, was originally meant to be played by Sellers. One of the things that I love about this movie is that it was commissioned by Columbia Pictures, who, as Aoife mentioned, had previously funded Kubrick's um, Lolita, which had been a box office success. Columbia looked at Stanley Kubrick's Lolita in 1962 and said, you know what? We have cracked this. We have figured out exactly what it takes for a movie to make money at the box office. 
It needs Peter Sellers playing two roles. Peter Sellers making two roles, playing two roles is good for the box office because in that movie, Sellers plays a character who at one stage impersonates another character. So apparently Columbia said, okay, Peter Sellers playing two roles. That's, that's a lot of money. Peter Sellers playing four roles. That's bank, baby. And apparently they told Kubrick that they would greenlight any project he wanted as long as he agreed to cast Peter Sellers in no fewer than four roles. And that is why Sellers plays the three roles that he does here. It's... He was apparently also supposed to play Kong, but sprained his ankle or claimed he sprained his ankle, depending on who you ask. Sorry. It was it was going to be a remake of The Nutty Professor. <laughs> the the Jerry Lewis. Um, actually, had the Jerry Lewis version been made at this point, it was going to be Christmas with the Clumps. Um, <laughs> sorry. Norbit. Norbit, yeah. But yeah, I mean, like that that's the thing. And again, you had the situation where Sellers said that he couldn't get the accent right. He, like at one stage, he sent a letter saying, I am so very sorry to tell you that I am having serious difficulty with the various roles. Now hear this. There is no way, repeat, no way I can play the Texas pilot Major King Kong. I have a complete block against that accent. Um, letter from my agent follows. Please forgive Peter S. So apparently they had to figure out, they had to recast the role when, and again, several several stories for this. First of all, is that apparently Sellers sprained his ankle and therefore couldn't get around the set properly. That's one story. The second is that Peter Sellers faked spraining his ankle so that he wouldn't have to play the role. And the third story is that when they put Peter Sellers in the cocktail seat, uh, sorry, in the cockpit seat, um, Kubrick noticed that he was shorter than the other actors he had cast and thought that it didn't look right. So they decided that they had to recast the role of uh, Kong. They initially suggested getting John Wayne. John Wayne apparently read the script and didn't write back. Um, they also suggested getting Big Dan Blocker, uh, who was Hoss Cartwright from Bonanza. How big a man is he? Kubrick asked. And apparently Southern responded, bigger than John Wayne. Um, so they looked up a picture in the player's guide and Kubrick went to him without further query. So he arranged for the script to be delivered to Blocker that afternoon. And apparently Blocker's agent replied almost immediately thanks a lot but the material is too pinko for dan or anyone else we know for that matter <laughs> guards liebman cma um so apparently the way that they got they got slim pickens to play the role who had done some cowboy work before but was literally a rodeo clown in his earlier career slim pickens and they gave him just the script pages that featured kong so that he convinced Slim Pickens that he was the hero of this movie about a heroic bomber pilot who manages to nuke Russia while all the odds are against him. Well, that is essentially what that part of the movie is about. As in that they, they, they have no awareness of, of anything that's kind of like happening and they have a, a, a mission and a job to do and that they accomplish it, it's, um, it well. And 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 they're that that they're that they're hitting a a nuclear missile um, silo. Yep, not a civilian target or anything like that. Or yeah. yeah. So it isn't even a thing where they're like, oh, we can't we can't nuke Moscow. What about all of the millions of people there? Um, <laughs> no, it's just it's just a place where they keep missiles. But I want to ask like Jay and Aoife, actually, because this is something I think is is kind of interesting when talking about Kubrick, because. So much of Kubrick is this cult of Kubrick and this cult of the auteur and his treatment of actors. And, you know, we've had this kind of reckoning with his treatment of, say, Shelley Duvall on The Shining, for example, which is horrific. 
But like in terms of things like his treatment of Scott, where he makes an actor a promise of one thing and then completely disregards that promise. Is there is that is there a criticism to be made there? Is that compar it's not obviously not comparable in terms of intensity to what he does to Deval on The Shining. But is that something that we tend to glamorize when we talk about auteurs well, like this? Is that a violation we, don't, of trust? Don't we glamorize everything when it comes to your Kubricks and that level of filmmaker? They tend to get away like, with murder. I don't think they're like I don't think that's a heinous crime as such. Like I mean, I imagine that happens quite a lot because uh, you know actors are sensitive enough. So you know sometimes you don't want to do the thing that you don't want them <laughs> to do and all the rest of it. So a lot of that kind of stuff I, I imagine happens with director's far more kind of mild than Kubrick as well, just probably yeah. in a different kind of way. But I, I think there's enough stories from him about yeah. him. But I mean, Jesus, I mean, you could say the same about David or Russell. At least Kubrick's made some good films. Like, do you know what I mean? <laughs> you don't like Tree Kings? Yeah, that's all right. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Um, Not much after okay. that, though. <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, but you know um, what I mean? Like, I think I do think it is that kind of thing where he he's does, definitely, yeah. He's not like I don't think I don't think he's great. I don't think he really views people as people, or never, or yeah. did in any real way. So that comes through in his films. It comes through in his relationships with screenwriters. Those films. If you ever read the Frederick Raphael, who wrote co-wrote Eyes Wide Shut with him, uh, he wrote a book about it, and like he kind of inserts himself in the story much more than he probably was. But Kubrick just cut him dead as soon as the thing was done. Like he presumed it was a friendship that wasn't there as well. You know, and I think that happens quite a lot. That kind of thing. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just how he is, I think. And it it's not great, but it But it's it's, 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 what, it's what makes Kubrick Kubrick. You know, it's like yeah. he is very much focused on on the film and on the technology and on making the greatest film, the best film that he can make. You know, he is not I never I've never seen him as an actress director. He's very much no. a, you know, very much a technical director. Um, and his films are gorgeous and beautiful to look at, but there's very little humanity in, in his films, you know, other than, I think, Space Odyssey, which I think is just wonderful, you know. Um, but, yeah, his, his films are... They're, I think they're you're cold. right, Ethan. I think, and I think there's not a lot of actor performances in it either. Yeah, they're cold and they're, they're clean and they're beautiful. And, um, and that's, that's what I love about them too, you know. That's... Um, yeah, you know, it's what and, makes him Kubrick, basically. And many of the actors are doing what you expect the actors to do. Like Jack Nicholson is phenomenal in The Shining, but he's doing a Jack Nicholson performance. I think it, Sellers is phenomenal here, but he's doing Sellers. You know, it does kind of uh, kind of perpetuate the the kind of myth of the difficult artists. There are lots of lots of artists who aren't Kubrick can kind of latch on to. And yeah. uh, uh, like, like, oh, it, I, does. I, it is a mythology. Like, and I yeah, people ape it very much. So, yeah, I think that's it justify... it's not great. And it, like, yeah. worse behaviors probably get probably being influenced by it probably more than any other director in a lot of ways because of the culture around it. Yeah, because it it's it it it's a real relief that you don't have to be a decent person because you're this terrific artist. You know, you can treat people however you want. The art to. that you're making is worth other people's suffering. Yeah, exactly. Their suffering will be worth it because my art will be good. Um, yeah, don't you understand? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's my vision. But I mean, something that I think Eva and Jay said there kind of is interesting that might be worth unpacking. So I'm going to throw this to to Eva and and Jay. 
the Kubrick, and we mentioned at the start of the, the kind of spoiler zone, like one of Kubrick's big themes is this idea of systems that run out of control and systems that have no space for humanity within them. And many of them are built by people, ironically enough, and end up stripping out humanity. And it's interesting that you end up talking about his movies in ways that the movies reflect the systems more than the people trapped within them, where they're always immaculately constructed. You know, Kubrick's symmetrical framing, for example, they're always mechanically perfect. And they're always like seemingly cruel to the people who are trapped within them. Is there something in there in the idea that like Kubrick's movies are almost built in the way that he seems to see the world and, and they kind of parallel one another. Is that fair to say? Aoife, or think, is that... um, just, I mean, I've been thinking about this one in particular. I think this one is, is sort of different in that it's yes, the system, but the system is a human system in this one. So it, it's a hum, human failure rather than technology failure as in it, like in his other films, um, it's the human processes that are put in place. You know, um, you know, the technology in this film does what it's supposed to do. You know, the planes do what they're supposed to do. The you know the call codes do what they're supposed yeah. to do. It's just that <laughs> because a human intervened, everything got screwed up. You know, and um, so it's the human system in this film that that, that fails. So that, I think that's really interesting because you know most of his other films, it's the technology that is problematic you know you look at 2001 it's it's hal you know yeah so yeah i think it's interesting i hadn't you know it's only when we when we were talking about it that i was just thinking about it i think it's it's quite interesting i think there's an interesting point though in terms of filmmakers and how they view their subjects their films the people that are in them the characters like i mean you could argue to some degree not too dissimilar say the Coen brothers i would consider kind of quite cold filmmakers yeah. And view their view their characters and their people in the films with as much cruelty as I suspect uh, Kubrick does. I think they're probably nicer people, but in terms of actual <laughs> people. But I think within those films, you can see in particular, say Fargo, for example. Yeah, there's a kind of meanness of spirit in there. Like, I, I still admire a lot of them. I like a lot of them. I'm not saying they're bad. I it's might just, push back against that. I, I, I mean, do think there is a strange decency and warmth at the heart of Fargo. You, you always do push back on that, I, though. On... I know. Well, stop push back, Darren. Then. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. No. No. That. That's fair. Darren. Darren is the Cohen brothers are secretly they, yeah. on 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 Cohen brothers. We we know that you defend the Cohen brothers. Listen, I love the Cohen brothers. I I love their films. I do. <laughs> not defending the Cohen. Like I mean, you like, act as if like, you act as if like it's like no. You're saying that like they they could be good filmmakers and Cohen. But I just don't in think fairness, they are. Uh, in no, fairness, they can. You're absolutely correct. They can be. I just don't think they are personally. But I I, think, I don't think that pulls away from their films either. I think the, their the, the view of the world is same is similar a very particular way. Yeah. In fairness, as as Jay said, like like if you speak to some of the actors who've worked with the Coen Brothers, they have lots of nice things to say. But you speak yeah, yeah, to the characters, <laughs> you speak <laughs> the to the fictional like, characters, and they, they they're, they're not they're very, not as complimentary. No, yeah, no, it's no. like I read the script and it was terrible. I do love, by the way, <laughs> that like apparently Kubrick would like force Scott to go along with his plans by beating him at chess. Apparently, when they had an argument on set, okay, would stop, yeah, would stop production and play a game of chess with Scott. He would always win, and then Scott would grudgingly agree to go along with whatever Kubrick had pitched because they bet that that was going to be the outcome of the chess match. Can you imagine filming that movie? And it's just like, okay, we got another chess match taking place. I hope they set <laughs> um, a clock. Like, you know, <laughs> it's like, okay, 10 minutes each side. Like... <laughs> um, what I let let's let's mention let's okay we tease this at the start is Doctor Strangelove the horniest movie that we have covered 
on the 250. Is this the most... What if you want to be covered that would be considered horny? Give me the horny uh, top 10 for the 250 there. I'll, I'll defer to Andrew. Andrew is the expert here. Well, it's it's very kind of horny in a in a in a kind of uh, in one uh, direction kind of. You know, as as it, as it is like, it's it's like um, it's pointing in one direction. It's like a carry on kind of uh, or yeah, there is an there is. like like the the um, there are a lot the, of dicks. There aren't a lot of vaginas. It's just a whole lot of lads, like kind of like sitting around, like kind of with their eyebrows going up and down and stuff. You know, but there's there's it's, no uh, there's, there's no accident that Leonard Roster is in a couple of Stanley Kubrick films. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's, that, there's a kind of bodiness, Englishness yeah. kind of thing pervades through it, I think. Yeah, it is very much like a 12 year old kind of film. But I mean, like, the thing is that's, and again, this is the thing when Aoife mentioned the idea that you're looking at Ripper and you're thinking of QAnon and you're thinking of the Capitol riots. And no, I was... no fap movements. <laughs> that, that's the, exactly the, it. Yeah, that's yeah. Like, he's, like, he's an incel. Like, no, he, not he is... November. No fat February. Yeah. No onanism October. Um, You've got the ones railed off. I have a calendar. Indeed, yes. But as long as you're conserving the precious seed, so that you can use it when you're underground. Um, Exactly. but like I discovered like, this in, in <laughs> during the, the physical, dark act physical, physical act of love. Physical act of love. Yes, a, prof- a profound sense of fatigue, a feeling of emptiness followed. <laughs> Luckily, I was able to interpret these feelings correctly. Lots of essence. Yes. I can assure you, it has not recurred, Mandrake. Women, women sense my power, and they <laughs> seek the life essence. I don't yeah. avoid women, Andrew, but I do <laughs> Darren, deny them my essence. The, the like we're we're making fun of this stuff because it, like because it ought to be made fun of, and but not only is this a character in a movie, the like the, the things that he espouses are like movements yes. that exist <laughs> in the world. Yeah. It's crazy in the twenty in the twenty first century. century. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like that when I was watching it, that is what was terrifying yeah. to me. Is so, that it's like no. Like he is, he is an incel. He's like, I deny women my essence. Like I discovered that I, I had difficulty during the act of making love, during the act of performance. And so I decided that the entire world must die as a result of that. Um, Like he took, he took the black and white pill, you know? I mean, I was going to say this is, you know, the horniest movie we've covered. And it's a good thing it's black and white because there's more than 50 shades of gray here, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah. but like, it's, worth, it's actually worth mentioning of how uh, great Sterling Hayden is. Um, yes. I am a huge Sterling Hayden fan. Um, I've watched a couple of his noirs in the last uh, month or two where he's he popped up and he's a terrific actor. And that, that kind of low shot of him where he's smoking yes, smoke a cigar, cigar in shade is terrifying. It's like, it's, it's you can see the... The lightness eyes that he's convinced himself everything he says is both profound, accurate, and you know he's ready to lead the free world him. once it all goes belly up. It's amazing. I mean, you, you, yeah. you talk about this film as being a horny film, but nobody's mentioned the opening sequence with the uh, the phallic, <laughs> the phallic plane yes. objects uh, being inserted into other planes. You know, it's yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's incredibly funny. And- <laughs> And the opening yes. theme is an instrumental version of Try, Try a Little Tenderness, tenderness yeah. as well. The <laughs> fact that you have, for example, the introduction of like Kong reading porn magazines, like yeah. while he's flying around, for example. The fact yeah. that the only female character in the movie um, is Tracy Reed. 
um, who's playing Miss Foreign Affairs who's as well. Who's fantastic, by the way. And no, is the Playboy they... model in the Playboy magazine as well. Yeah. Her delivery, like of the 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 conversation, the the, per- the perfect kind of um, uh, secretarial voice, like delivered in in in, in like a bikini, and the the kind of like as 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 pruriented or, um, as as you can kind of accuse this movie of being, the the juxtaposition there is 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 I think very well delivered. So. And I mean, obviously, you have things like, for example, you know, Major Kong riding the nuclear bomb uh-huh. as a, like a giant penis between his two legs. The fact that the, the nuclear bombs are titled Hi There and Dear John. The fact that like the the nuclear survival preparation pack that like Kong has for his men. You could have a pretty good weekend with Vegas in this. Contains things like $100 in rubles, $100 in gold, a prophylactic, a set of nylon stockings. Um, the yeah. fact that it's... It's it's basically if you have to crash land in Russia, it's like you you need to be able to give to trade uh, nylons for like, and condoms. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, condoms yeah, are presumably there. use them when having sex. But <laughs> 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 you don't give away a condom when you're like lost in Siberia. Um, but like. like- Things like the fact that, you know, the characters all have, like, vaguely, like, heavily sexual names. You know, the fact that, like, the President of the United States is called, and again, Merkin Muffley. He's named twice for female genitalia. You have Lionel Mandrake, which is obviously the kind of the the root that looks like a person supposedly coming from the semen of hanged men. You have, like, Buck Turgidson, um, just to make sure that you kind of properly get it. You got King Kong there as well. You got, like... The fact that it is so explicitly and heavily sexualized, and the fact that obviously you have things like Strange Love, and the title obviously being Strange Love himself. Well, okay, things like say the Russian ambassador, whose name is Alexei Desadesky, and the <laughs> fact that, and again, I don't, I haven't seen anybody write about this, so I don't know if this is just me stretching things, but he looks a little bit like a, like uh, Alfred Hitchcock, like Peter Bull looks more than I can a see little a little, bit. I can see a little bit. The silhouette of like the the big kind of large, bold, voyeuristic British director who's taking pictures inside yeah. the warmth of the big board uh, and the fighting and the wrestling <laughs> that kind of takes I, place. I, I suspect uh, Terry Southern had a lot to do with the character <laughs> names. Uh, um, they they're they're right right in his wheelhouse. Those kind of entente ridden uh, absurdities, like. Yeah. And things like Strange Love, whose like hand is out of control, but like the Nazi salute becomes like an erection. And the fact uh-huh. that like at the end of the movie, after they've nuked the missile base. He tries to choke himself. He's yeah. like yeah. biting his, his 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 hand. His gloved hand and stuff like that as well. And things like the bit where like at the end of the world, you have like this bit where he's like, oh, and by the way, if you'll have lots of sex with lots of women, you'll need to have women who are chosen for their beauty in the whole. And of course, it'll be, you know, and then you have things like Turgidson saying, you mean we might have to give up monogamy? And you have the reaction yeah. shot of like Muffley and Turgidson just listening to this creepy German man talk about the eugenics experiments that they're uh-huh. going to run down there. And like naturally the movie ends with with strange love standing literally erect like this conversation has excited him so much i can walk um but like you have the idea that yeah the blood is is flowing again and so you have this 
thing that runs through Strangelove, and again, part of me wonders if this is, again, Kubrick's kind of like British-American thing in action, where it feels like, is American culture at this point in 1964, You and Jay mentioned coming out of the code, coming out of the code era, we talked about something like in Hot at Christmas, but the idea that it's like, is American culture so repressed and stifling and suffocating that the only way for these men to like act on their feelings in in these ways is to channel it or sublimate it into the building of these bombs to confuse you know the freudian urge of urge of eros and thanatos to tie death and sex together um or am i just like you know trying to read too much into a 12 year old schoolboy joke I think I think it'd be a bit of both. Um, I think there's something in that. I think they kind of there's a there's like regardless of anything, it's a it's a massive power trip. These are powerful bombs, powerful men delivering powerful bombs. Do you know they're they're regardless of anything, they, they might be idiots or they might be kind of repressed or they might be all sorts of things, but they they see something in themselves or reinforce each other's kind of power in the war room. Even that conversation, that kind of eugenics room, they all get they all get fairly excited about the idea of it like it's it, this is like the ideal this is the ideal like the Sadzeski, you know. the, the russian the russian the russian ambassador is like he has a good idea um, like, and it's like the first like, thing what's a one man on. for every nine women or something these are the ratio yeah yeah, yeah, and, yeah and the 10 women would have to be chosen according yeah, to for their, their particular sexuality yeah. Yeah, yeah it's like it, this is the perfect thing for weak men who assume positions of power and manage to win the lottery as they see it. Like, this, this is the ultimate kind of thing. You get to choose and remake the world in your own image. Um, and I love that immediately the first thing that Turgeson does when that happens is Turgeson begins to worry that the Soviets, there will be a mine shaft gap. He worries <laughs> that the Soviets will breed more prodigiously and more thoroughly than us. Like, yeah. And again, the idea is that it's all sexual. It's all sexual insecurity. Mm-hmm. Um, like, obviously, you have Ripper, who's dealing with the fact that he's impotent by destroying the world. But you have Turgidson, who's like, yeah, but what if the Russians are better at sex than us? Like, what What are we going to, how can we deal with that as a, as a nation of men? An, an unfounded uh, anxiety um, of, of Turgidson. Is that the the the, the um, birth rates? I I I think dropped in 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 Russia, kind of like not only throughout the Soviet Union, but I think like um, uh, even beyond. Um, Counterpoint to that, though, is that like Kissoff seems to be one of the few people in the movie who's actually having sex. So that, when they ring the Soviet premiere, he's both drunk and with his mistress, which yeah. I kind of love. And I love that the Sadesky is kind of there. And I mean, it, it, like, again, it's notable that, like, in contrast to the American men, like, is Lionel Mandrake, the British RAF exchange officer, the most heroic character in this movie? And is that perhaps because he's not obsessed with this masculinity in the way that the Americans are because you have scenes like Colonel Black Grano calling him a prevert and his yeah. preversions like um, and the sense in which like all the other characters are vaguely confused by him but he's not at all insecure about it is there something there about American masculinity and the point that maybe Kubrick is making with Sellers or is that too much well I think I think Sellers performance as Mandrake is is probably my favorite performance in the film it's very understated in comparison to everything else that's going on um, and it's you know it's that kind of 
that scenes where they get the arm around the shoulder with a uh, <laughs> oh, where he's Ripper. fidgeting, where he's yeah, fidgeting, yeah, and like yeah. as it's, Ripper it's just is so explaining, he's making these almost boomerang noises and stuff like that. But <laughs> I, but I think there's there's I think there's similar things in Mandrake, but Mandrake is that kind of proper British officers repressed kind of uh, thing. <laughs> they do the duty that's needed on that particular day, but he wouldn't he wouldn't be hanging the future on it. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love by the way like again my favorite small gag is the sequence and it's done in one shot where like he's come in he's found the radio and he's come in to report it to ripper and ripper gets up during the conversation and locks the door to his office and sits back down and then like mandrake says well i will have to report this immediately and then turns around walks to the door that he just saw ripper lock and tries to open it acting confused one of my favorite little gags in the movie yeah, it's great um but is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything we haven't discussed already kind of jumping out at us with regards to Doctor Strange? So Aoife, anything else uh, for yourself? Um, I think I, I love the ending. I mean, I think um, just the, the, the bombs going off uh, to, to Vera Lynn's. I mean, we'll, we'll meet again. I mean, that, that's just that's just genius. You know, I mean, that just makes that's pretty me, iconic and fairness. Yeah, it makes me laugh every time I see it. You know, I think um, actually you're talking about this film here and listening to, to you guys talk about it. Uh, you know, it makes me want to sit down and watch it again. And I only watched it the other day, you know, so it's, yeah, it's, it's a good one. So yeah, I really like it. We should note actually of the ending, apparently, and, and like, it's interesting that both Aoife and Jay singled out 2001 A Space Odyssey as Kubrick's most humanist and warmest film. The original ending for 2001 A Space Odyssey was going to end with the star child destroying every nuclear weapon on earth and killing all of humanity. And the only reason why Kubrick decided not to do that was because he felt it would be repeating Dr. Strangelove. So I do like that in terms of um, the only reason why 2001 is a humanist movie is because Kubrick already did want to repeat himself. Yeah. <laughs> I'm no hack, nuclear says mode. Kubrick, you'll all live. <laughs> Just this once, everybody lives. Yeah. Um, I, I like the kind of the... It being a movie of its time and kind of demonstrating that sort of paranoia was kind of grounded in things that were kind of going on. You know, this idea of kind of like mind control and of the CIA yeah. um, kind of uh, have, having MK their Ultra. MK Ultra and kind of like, what was it called? The the um, uh, horny uh, midnight, midnight climax was the, the thing that they ran in San Francisco where they... they um, okay, I thought a, you said horny midnight climax. That seems like a, <laughs> kind of like an excessive name. Sorry. No, I was thinking like like this idea of like like the mixture of paranoia and horniness, <laughs> where the uh, midnight climax, where they they kind of run the CIA run oh, a brothel. Oh, that's the bordellos. Yeah, yes, I mean, they sell yeah. LSD. If I'm correct, exactly. It? Yeah, yeah, and then like kind of try try to see if if um, if people will reveal things like when they're dosed with like LSD. And... Is this the one where somebody jumped out a window? if I remember correctly I think I might I have yeah I okay. think I might have heard that one but I'm I'm, I'm not certain but yeah welcome no, to I'd... the secret horny history of the United States <laughs> um. but um, yeah no and I, I um, and um, in terms of inappropriate smoking there was uh, smoking in bed at the beginning um <laughs> And I mean, Ripper was doing something very inappropriate while smoking that cigar. You know, he was trying to kill mankind. So I think that counts. That is true. It, it, yeah. Jay's right. It does look cool. It does look very boss. But I do think it's it's inappropriate. I think there's um, a couple of things that worth mentioning, actually. Uh, one is that the, the sequences where the army are trying to kind of take back the base, they, it has this kind of, the, I know Aoife has watched it recently, so I thought worth mentioning the Battle of Algiers, because it has this kind of documentary yeah. kind of quality, film quality. Yes. That's really impressive, actually. 
It's um, all handheld. Very well put. Yeah, yeah. And it just looks like somebody just took footage from a war kind of newsreel and uh, stuck it in as a kind of stock footage, which is, you know, very impressive. And and like, I think it lends the movie a kind of a documentary quality, along yeah. with the voiceover at the start, like the voiceover yeah. narration, even the text presentation telling you that the, the United States military wants you to know that nothing you are about to see is actually true, even though it probably is. But you have like the, it does feel weirdly, and again, it's a odd thing to say, like cinema verite, but it does feel documentary-esque. Like, yeah, I don't think this would work in color. Yeah, I no. don't think it would work oh, God, in color. No. Um, one I other think... thing just worth shouting out, uh, young James Earl Jones. Yes. yes. I was Lieutenant wondering Luther that. Do I always forget? Me too. Uh, yeah, is yeah, it yeah, yeah, Every yeah. time I watch it again, it's like, God damn it. I was I was almost going to Google it, and then I thought, no, you're just being a racist. Like you just think, <laughs> like what you do, like uh, no, it, yeah. it's like, but but he sounds just like James Earl Jones, yeah, yeah. and it's like, don't do it, Andrew. Um, yeah, <laughs> you're not sorry. that guy. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, I mean, the thing about Jones is that basically, um, he when he took the role. Uh, the character that would become Zog was a much more um, developed character. He was the guy who was going to be the conscientious objector um, okay. on the crew. He was going to be the guy who would actually have a confrontation. And and he's talked about this, like um, Jones was anti-Vietnam War. And he's talked about how some of the most awkward uh, meals in his life were when he had to get lunch with George C. Scott during the filming of Dr. Strangelove. Because um, George C. Scott was not uh, anti-Vietnam, it turned out. What? Um, <laughs> You didn't know this. He was a whole. Uh, no, it's been. I okay, okay. I, 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 it, it does give off that vibe, like constantly. God yeah. bless him. As much as I love him. But like, and one of the things that Jones has noted is that because he was cast early, he noticed all the naming of the characters changing in the various drafts of the script. So, like Strange Love, who was a new character, was originally called Von Klutz, um, and he notes that like um, all of the char- many of the characters are named after comic book characters. So Mandrake is named after Mandrake the Magician, for example. You know, Doctor Strange. Um, mm-hmm. And he noticed that Luther Zog, the character that he plays, was like Mandrake the Magician's sidekick. And even Bat Guano, for example, perhaps evokes a particular iconic character in terms of like 60s comic books. So I find that interesting as well. The idea that not only is this stuff explicitly sexual, it's all kind of very juvenile as well. But yeah, Jones has noted that, yeah, he was very disappointed that his big, juicy, like big on-screen role was reduced to a single question sir do you think this might be some kind of loyalty test or security check apparently that was the only like aspect of the original character who remained uh, Listen, in the film. It, if you if you work for kubrick or you work for malik there's a likelihood you won't end up in the film or you, uh, like this is how it goes like it's just that's how it is well, I mean, like, again, lots of stuff was cut from this. Apparently, the, the president was supposed... There was supposed to be a recurring joke about the president having a cold, and that's reduced down to a single shot when he's introduced wiping his nose. They completely deleted that subplot um, in the edit. And food waste. I'm going to cover Andrew on this. One. I'm going to cover Andrew's usual thing. The film, I think, perhaps narrowly avoids food waste with the possible exception of the ordering of food uh, when the Russian ambassador arrives and he's like, uh, I don't, you know, do you have any poached eggs, please? And he doesn't seem to eat them on screen. But apparently the movie was supposed to end with a gigantic custard pie fight sequence in the war room. And apparently they filmed it. And it's apparently amazing because they have to like clean it down between takes and completely clean the cast. Can you imagine? Like, according to Bell, who played the role of Dzeseski, um, they weren't allowed to wear their shoes on the set 
between when they weren't filming. They had to slip out into little slippers because they would scuff the floor otherwise. Uh, but apparently there was supposed to be a big pie sequence. The president was supposed to end up felled by a pie in the face. Uh, and was apparently supposed to like feature the line, a promising young leader felled in his prime. Um, and again, there's been some suggestion that this was cut either A, because of the Kennedy assassination, and they didn't want to be seen to making fun of that with a pie fight, or B, uh, the more likely explanation is that Kubrick thought that it didn't work with the pacing of the movie, or C, uh, Kubrick apparently, when he saw the finished footage, it seemed like the actors were enjoying themselves too much, and he felt that it was a moment that should be played for black comedy as serious drama, and therefore it didn't work. But yes, the film arguably narrowly avoids food waste, I think. It's yeah, because it's played very straight. Yeah, but like like the, and there, there were there there are still people who believe that 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 Kennedy was done by a pie, um. But I I think that's crazy. <laughs> the, um, magic, the magic pie theory is is way out there, unfortunately. Yeah, that's is, Oliver that Stone's is. JFK revisited, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, I think that about then wraps it up. Unless there's anything else we're talking about, anything we haven't discussed already. So, Aoife, Jay, anything you guys want to mention that we haven't? Uh, no, I think that that that'll do me. Oh, I'm good. What we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something, something for listeners, something you're enjoying at the moment. It could be something related to the movie we've just discussed, something completely unrelated, just something that is bringing you joy in this world. So to give Aoife and Jay a chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. Well, Jay already mentioned, um, and I think you did too, the um, American Prometheus, which is a book by, I'm going to recommend two books that I've already recommended and one that I don't think I have. American Prometheus was Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin. And it's the kind of, um, I, I, I suppose, um, what Eisenhower described as the, the kind of military-industrial military complex, real Robocop stuff, obligatory Robocop reference. How I did feel we like not I get just there until now? There. Um, <laughs> the, 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 um, the other one was is The Last Man in Russia. And apologies if, if, if it gives me a particular kind of... A, a, a view, view of, Russia. Of, of of Russia, but it's an interesting book nonetheless, and it 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 kind of follows the history of Russia through um, um, the life of one man from from kind of like the revolution to um, uh, uh, post Soviet Russia, and that uh, moves me on to 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 a more recent book that I read, which is The Oligarchs by David He um, Hoffman, which is fascinating. It's a balanced, almost sympathetic um, kind of uh, description of the careers of the uh, uh, Russian oligarchs kind of in in the kind of 70s, 80s and and, and 90s. The the like the the people who are kind of responsible for kind of like putting um, Yeltsin in the Kremlin. Uh, It's like Beresovsky um, and Khodorovsky and... Um, a few of these kind of people. And he even goes into kind of like um, uh, people that we would know like Abramovich and gets a mention because of the, the, the kind of Gazprom, Sibneft stuff. Um, it's it's very interesting. And, and, and it, it explains a lot about what kind of Russia um, became, uh, I guess, before Putin because they, 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 it, I think they've been made to kind of... Um, heal a bit um uh, after Putin as in that the that the that the um axis of kind of power has 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 maybe 
Um, they're they're an easy villain kind of thing. They are the the boogeyman. They are the. No, no, I, 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 I I'm, I'm not pro oligarch. <laughs> like, like, um, to be clear here, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that that the that that there was that would a, be a hot take. Oh. Yeah, that there was a point in 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 that history where they were kind of like the kingmakers, which I don't think is yeah. is is true anymore. That they couldn't just decide to get rid of Putin. Um, I'd probably agree with that he'd be Putin Putin him out of business. What's the name of the book again? Actually, Andrew, sorry. Uh, the the oligarchs. Um, it's a uh, David David E Hoffman. Now right. it's a it's it's an old enough kind of a book. Um, so it doesn't kind of like bring you right up to date or anything. That's fine. But, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll look that up. Thanks very much. Cool. All right. And then Aoife, what are you enjoying at the moment? Oh, sorry. Actually, sorry. No, I should have gone to Jay. <laughs> um, I've been trying to catch up on you know films that I felt I should have watched from that are probably you know I can I can feel Jay rolling his eyes now uh, when I say part of the what? part of the canon um so I recently caught up with Seven Samurai which I loved um I caught up with the Battle of Algiers which is absolutely wonderful um I, that that blew me away I was completely astonished by that film um and now this next one didn't bring me joy but it is a powerful piece of filmmaking and it's Shoah then the Claude Lansman oh, documentary Lord, yeah. all, that's, that's I finished rough. watching it all all nine and a half hours of it last night and it is an astonishing piece of work um, it's, isn't it just it's just remarkable and I think um, it's been sitting on my shelf for well over a decade at this stage and I finally because it was um, Holocaust Memorial Day last week, I said, right, I'm going to watch this. And I'm so glad I did. It's not an easy watch. It's There are you know things in that film that I will never, ever forget as long as I live. And it could be another 10 years before I ever watch it again, if I ever watch it again. But it is an absolutely... I was going to ask, yeah. An absolutely superb piece of work. So if you're in the right space for it, I can highly recommend it. Um, and Jay, what about yourself? What are you watching at the moment? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll second second that uh, recommendation. It's astonishing, Doc. But um, okay, I've got a, a quick kind of book, film, TV show, uh, film, because not many people talked about it, and I liked it a bit more than most did. Is uh, Clint Eastwood's last film, Quite Macho, which uh, I weirdly Jay, you into- never cease to surprise. I know, right? Me. I I <laughs> I didn't mind the Bob's previous one to that. Richard uh, Jewell. No, no, it was one after that. There was the. Uh, so don't worry with the, the floors, the mule. Yeah. yeah I, no, no, no. I, it was the, it was the mule and Richard like, Jewell. Richard Jewell's an abomination. Yeah, but, uh, no, I, that, that would have surprised me. That would have been The mule was take. okay. I liked it, but I, I surprisingly kind of half loved Cry Macho. Like, he's far too old for the part, and there's nonsense stuff in it completely. But the, the kind of iconography stuff with him, kind of, you know, sitting down at a campfire with the kind of cameras just moving behind them it's just oh it's Riding gorgeous a horse for the first time since yeah. 92 i think since unforgiven and i think it's and the insurance a, agent sweating it on the back yeah, of the yeah. set i don't know if you if you um like obviously we, we talked about eastern forward it's the whole kind of conversations around there kind of masculinity and all the rest of it, it what's interesting in this one there's a conversation where he explicitly and i mean explicitly calls out the impulse <gasps> of men that they're the way they kind of hold themselves and stuff like that and it's probably the most explicit i've seen them do it and he's just obviously he's got to a point where he can say what the fuck he wants anyway at this stage, you know what I mean? It, but I, I kind of half loved it. It was, it was sweet and weird and strange and kind of odd. And it was kind of, you know, it's likely you'll never see him on the screen again. 
I suspect this is it. And like he'd probably make another film, maybe, but I don't think he'll be on screen again. I suspect and it's not the worst goodbye you could have. I don't think. I thought it was a little harsh. I mean, we have been saying that for thirty years. That's yeah, true. Like, Which is, he looks frail though. That's all. I just you know, oh, he you know, see, he's, yeah. he's he's old. But I, it's he, not a bad swan song. Was he in Richard Jewell? No, 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 no. no. Oh, okay. he was in this. He one. was in this the mule. Just... He was in the mule, and he was in this one. Right. So uh, this is, uh, and he's ninety-one in this, I think, or something like yeah. that. That's a, uh, it's, it's mad. But like, I worry that he's going to die. My favorite detail about that is that 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 script, <laughs> and he just kept rolling because he didn't say cut. Um, yeah. What was it? What What's the thing he says? Is like printed and move on. I think is the thing that he says. Yeah, like, yeah. He's I, got I, the take he, that he wants. And there, and there's, he doesn't take long. And no, the films feel it sometimes very he's, much. He's so. the anti the anti Kubrick. <laughs> He absolutely yes, he is. is. It's like, well, he apparently he's still like at the age of ninety-one. He finishes at five o'clock on his movie and goes and plays around a round of golf, which is in the <laughs> middle of a pandemic, which is insane. Well, no, they, they 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 were recommending golf as like an activity, and it was part of public health advice in the United States. A lot of people took up golf during the pandemic. Okay. Um, but but no no, it's it's more the fact that like I I couldn't make a movie and golf outside of a pandemic, and Clint Eastwood's like I'm ninety-one. And I'm going to make a movie. Yeah. I'm going to finish it at nine, I, at five, and I'm going to golf. I would recommend. I I think it's better than people reviewed it. I don't think it's great. I'm not saying it's brilliant, but I kind of loved it uh, in its own way. It has a sort of curious charm to it that really kind of got me. And I wasn't expecting it. I was expecting to just kind of, all right, I'll suffer through this a little bit. And, and he got the script, I think, in like 1972. Oh, yeah. It was, like, they, they was shot for somebody like in the late 50s or something. And he just yeah. look at it right here anyway. I love the fact that eventually at the age of 91, he's like, now I'm ready. And he like <laughs> punches a guy out, the most unconvincing punch a guy out I've ever seen. But it, it doesn't matter. Just give it and he can do it. Like. And, and we've seen The Irishman. <laughs> well, indeed. indeed. Was, there you go. Was it, was it on a par? With that kind of like with old man fighting, with that sequence where he attacks, yeah, where he attacks yeah. the shop owner uh, in, the Irish in a different room. way, it kind of was. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Michael Keaton's action sequence in the upcoming Flash movie. But anyway, sorry, sorry, Jay. Yeah, yeah. The other thing, a book I recommend I just finished last night, which is Hell No Horror's uh, book, Women vs Hollywood, uh, which I think is coming out last year. It's coming out in paperback, I think, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, it's very, very good. It's it, unapologetically polemic kind of writing about the anger and thing of women being sidelined between the and other minorities of and uh, she brings in kind of trans conversations and kind of people of color conversations without as much kind of historical background because you know whatever about women being cut out of film industry you go lower lower in terms of how people are represented seen they practically had no look in but she tries to be as representative as possible which i think is to her credit if you've read Hollywood books before, you'll have seen and read some familiar stuff here. But she's managed to take out some really interesting stuff, some really angry juicy stories and some remarkably sober statistics. Uh, but she ends it a little, a little more hopeful than she began it. So I think it's well worth a read. Really, really interesting book. Um, What's the author's name again? Uh, Helen O'Hara. She writes for Empire Magazine, actually. Yeah. She's, or she's an editor, I think, there now. But uh, she wrote a book called Women Burst Hollywood. It's very good. Well worth a read. And finally... I'll get the hell out of here, out of your hair, lads. Uh, <laughs> TV show that I've just watched the second season of, and one more season ago called Mister In Between, which everybody's been watching, and was recommended to me, which is about an Australian hitman in like thirty-minute episodes, and it's remarkable, absolutely remarkable. Really funny, dark, weird, moving, everything you'd want, and burst them a plot, and like it wastes not a second. Uh, I think it's about 26 episodes in total so you fly to it I have about 10 to go and uh, I'm relishing each one it's excellent 
So don't miss it. <laughs> Mr. In-Between. Mr. In-Between. Very, very good. And for myself then, um, in terms of movies, I guess, because this is a movie about the end of the world, I guess I will recommend uh, John Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy because I rewatched it last year and it's phenomenal. Uh, in particular, the third and least, well, the, the second and third, because the thing is a, a widely seen masterpiece. It's also on the list. We've done a podcast on it. But things like um, the Prince of Darkness, which is is phenomenal, um, yep. is one of the movies I remember my granddad showing me when I was far too young to be watching those movies and so have a very treasured memory of it. Uh, and In the Mouth of Madness, uh, starring Sam Neill. It's it's one of the best Lovecraftian movies uh, uh, that I think has ever been made. So I will recommend both of those. Um, and actually, because Jay recommended Cry Macho, I rewatched uh, Unforgiven um, at a couple of weekends ago. Um, and it's it's still a masterpiece. It's yep. it's a phenomenal piece of American cinema. Um, and it's a movie you look at like from 30 years ago and you're like, Man, Clint Eastwood had a good career. It's a good thing that he's winding down now, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but, not a bit uh, of it. Not a bit of it, which I, I absolutely love as well. Dear God, I hope nothing terrible has happened by it April. April. I'm actually doing I'm about to... I'm, depending on when oh, who no. you're to... I I'm just a got a notification. To... Henry Kissinger. No. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Depending on what you say, I'd either have done it or I'm about to do a bit of an ease with deep dive on a lot of stuff I haven't seen over the next few weeks. Okay. So, are you doing the whole like set? A seventies, eighties kind of stuff. What? Are you doing the whole set? Because I am like I've always wanted to watch. I'm not doing the whole set, but okay. I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna. There's a lot of scene and a lot of scene kind of not really, but a lot of stuff like uh, the kind of Sandra Locke problematic ones and yes, uh, yeah. you know and. A few others haven't seen the 80s action ones and stuff like that. I've seen some of them, but not all of them. And a few in between. I think about 10 or 15 I'm going to take on. Yeah, exactly. Firefox is a masterpiece. It is not a masterpiece. (laughs) There are are a few things like that that I've got. Like some of them sound terrible. Some of them sound great. And some of them I either haven't seen most of them or I've seen them so long ago that I might not have seen them. So that's my The Egon Sanction, isn't it? Is that the The one? Iger Sanction. Iger Sanction. Yeah, I rewatched Dirty Hurry recently. It's incredible. stand up, people. Not very good. It's oh, incredibly okay. right wing. It's just like horribly yeah, right wing. It's just like oh. <laughs> oh, it's a fantasy, isn't it? Yeah, very much so, isn't it? Yeah. Like it's always been a kind of a right wing. Like what if yeah. what if we just shot the Zodiac? <laughs> That's basically what Dirty Harry asks. Like David Fincher's like, what if we found the Zodiac? But Dirty Harry's like, no. What if we shot the Zodiac? <laughs> um, but um, um, I don't. What, what about any which way but loose? And and and, he didn't and, that. and the second one. Oh, you're only watching the ones he directed. Oh, he directed, yeah. Ah. What is that called again? Is it like it's something any like which way any, you can. Oh, hold on. Eva he literally has can. the box set. Thirty-five Clint Eastwood films. Thirty-five Clint Eastwood films. So that's 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 a weekend kind of set. I've got to pick that up because apparently it's a good value. You can I thought that said something hard. else when she held it up. <laughs> <laughs> that L and that I are very close together. Yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, I get you. Okay, yeah. Sorry. That's that podcast. That podcast is not for this podcast. That's a, that's a different podcast. That's Although it does fit with the horniness of tonight. Because yeah. we spent 20 minutes talking about Clint Eastwood, I guess I'm now going to have to watch all of the Clint Eastwood movies. Thank you. Darren, Whenever we do we, a We're going to do it, you know that. We're going to do it. I believe in us. <laughs> All right. With that in mind, then uh, we're going to wrap up. Aoife, Jay, where can we find you? Aoife, where are you at? What are you up to online? Um, I'm on Twitter at Aoife Martin. That's A-O-I-F-E-M-R-T-N. And I'm on Instagram at the same address. I I tweet semi-regularly. I rarely post on Instagram, but I'm there if you want to look for me. 
And I also write the other article for the journal.ie. Um, and Jay, what are you up to? Where are you at? <laughs> What's my Twitter handle again? <laughs> I keep forgetting <laughs> because of an unfortunate incident. Uh, it's at... Uh, GPR Jay, Jay refuses Jay. to delete those tweets towards Henry Kissinger. Um. If only he was on Twitter. My God, he'd get ratioed. Anyway, I am at JPR Coyle. Because I was almost called Pierre when I was a baby. Uh, my mother wants to call me Pierre and my dad put his foot down. And I'm really glad because uh, that wouldn't have gone over well at Kulak. I can assure you that. <laughs> imagine it. Could you imagine? Pierre, Pierre Coyle. Yeah, why not? Pierre Coyle. <laughs> nice ring to it, right? It would have just been JP, right? Yeah. Oh, God, that makes All it right. even worse. Right. <laughs> I'm wearing a backwards-facing hat baseball cap. Um, now, the, now, the, now the squares are gone. Real kids can rap. Yeah. <laughs> You know me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's JP. <laughs> no, stop this. <laughs> All right. Fine. So if you want to follow JP, you can follow him at, at JP Coyle. Um, thank you very much. Um, you can follow the podcast at, at the 250. We're all on Stitcher and SoundCloud, wherever good podcasts are found. Please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, leave a positive review. Maybe how many stars, Andrew? Five. Five? That's, Five. That sounds like a good number. I think yeah, that's, that's a I nice round so. number. Um, we'll be back next week when the wonderful Emma Kiley will be joining us for a discussion of Danny Boyle's 1996 British classic, Train Spotting. Until then, thank you so much, Aoife. Thank you so much, JP. Take care, guys. Not a problem. See, it's thank it's you. British if it wins the Oscar, but like if it's a bomb, it's a <laughs> like Scottish Slumdog. movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, be, to be fair, it is. A, yeah, okay, all right. Anyway, we'll take sorry, care. Sorry. <laughs> Thank Thanks you, so Andy. much, Bye. guys. Bye.